Hey, welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Coming this Tuesday is the Ringer's third annual NBA Palooza, celebrating the tip-off of the 2019-2020 NBA season. Make sure you're subscribed to the Ringer's YouTube channel so you don't miss our day-long live stream, including the premiere of the new season of NBA Desktop, the fourth installment of our Take Hunter series with a surprise twist, the unveiling of the Bill Simmons's Lakers wine bottle team, and a live Ryan Russillo podcast to go along with so much more. Again, you can check all that out at youtube.com slash the ringer. I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about horror movies. I am joined by the horror sommelier, Chris Ryan. What up, Chris? This one has a bloody finish, but it has incredible notes of terror. (laughs) Chris, you've been invited here, obviously, because you love horror movies. I do. And it's Halloween time. And so what I need you to do is give us some recommendations, not just for some pretty good horror movies, not just some interesting horror movies. I want to hear from you the best horror movies of the decade. Yes. So we're going to do this in a two-part way. Yeah. You're going to fire away with those, the, the finely crafted, beautifully made, special to Chris Ryan flavors. Uh-huh. And then after that, I'm going to go through year by year and talk about from each year what my favorite horror movie is. Right. So we're basically giving people two lists. There might be some overlap. Yes. Okay. I like a little, I like a little two-parter in this way. Yeah. Later in the show, I'll have a conversation with the incredibly entertaining screenwriters, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski. They have a new film hitting Netflix today called Dolomite Is My Name, starring Eddie Murphy, about the wonderful Rudy Ray Moore. Before we get there, horror movies in 2019. Talk about that a lot on this show. I think last year was a crazy kind of breakout in the aftermath of Get Out for horror. There was Hereditary and there was A Quiet Place and there was, you know, the It franchise is really off and running and who knows, maybe there'll be a third movie. But this year, it feels like it's come down a little bit. I want to get a sense from you of what you think has happened to the genre over the last 10 years or so and what new shapes it's taken. Yeah, I think that there has been a little bit of a drift towards, as horror has obviously made itself into kind of a goldmine. Like, you you can make it at a really affordable price point, and it's almost the, the it seems like the floor box office-wise is pretty high. It does seem like that was intoxicating enough that now there's a lot of, like, prestige horror there's a lot of horror that's masquerading. Is It's really blockbuster, but they're saying it's horror. Like, when you watch It, there are some scary moments, but it's essentially, like, a big CGI movie star epic. Totally. Like, rather than, this is a really cool Stephen King thing. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, there's, like, a cyclical nature. Different people are, like, you know, didn't have movies this year. Two, I think that there is an interest from streaming television and horror a little bit more. So you see things like Into the Dark on Hulu, Castle Rock, which would, I think ordinarily might have been like two or three different movies within the, the bounds of Castle Rock is now on Hulu. Um, I know Blumhouse is working on a bunch of different television products, not necessarily all horror, but I do think that some of the, the sort of some of the content being spread around to different platforms. So it's hard to say for any definitive reason why it might be like a down year for her. I will say oft- also, I often come on and I'm like, oh, me and my wife watched this weird indie horror movie on iTunes. And I haven't seen as many of those, even though I have still been checking. Like even, I would say like last year, I probably watched 15 or 20 on iTunes that I really liked. And this year, it's more like five. 
And I feel like I've seen more things like um, more thrillers, more genre pieces like crime movies than I have horror movies. What accounts for that? I don't know. I mean, do you, I think that there's something to be said for the fact that you had a generation of directors who kind of came out of that VHS era of like people who were maybe ordinarily 15 years ago might have been more like mumblecore director, directors. They might have been making sort of more small domestic dramas and comedies trying their hands at horror because they could get those horror movies made. And I wonder whether or not those people have moved on to different things or in some cases are making movies for Netflix or making shows for Netflix and are kind of dispersed throughout the industry rather than simply like putting out a horror movie every 18 to 24 months. Yeah, I think I see three different lanes that have developed in the horror genre over the last 10 years. One is what you're talking about, which was sort of known as mumble gore. That was kind of yeah. the offshoot of the mumblecore movement, which was guys like Ty West who were making kind of really down and dirty and kind of chattery movies like that. The other was Blumhouse, which you mentioned, which was really quick, cheap, and dirty and very high concept and very smartly executed movies that maybe even featured movie stars, but were made for $5 million or less. And right. then the third was that blockbuster thing that you're talking about. It was like, you know what? John Krasinski is in a horror movie now. Yes. Or Get Out features one of the best cast supporting casts you'll ever see in a horror movie with, you know, Catherine Keener and Bradley Whitford and all these really great actors. And I feel like they're starting to converge uh -huh. a little bit onto the, and becoming sort of the same thing. And I don't really know where that leaves the genre. You know, I feel like 15 years ago, we we had a kind of a found footage moment. We had a haunted house moment. Some That haunted house moment has kind of evolved into the 2010s with movies like The Conjuring and Insidious and stuff like that. But I, I, don't, I don't have a clear sense of where we're going. So I have a theory about what this decade has sort of been for me. I, I, when, I, when I look back on this list of, of the best horror movies of the decade, and I was sort of putting, the, putting together my top five, it occurred to me that this was really a decade where visually horror movies became very self-reflexive. Obviously with Scream and those kinds of 90s tongue-in-cheek movies, you had a certain self-awareness about the tropes of horror movies and sort of the conventions of, you know, Final Girl. And, and I think that culminates with Cabin in the Woods. But visually, I think the dominating kind of idea was this, like, return to Carpenter, return to the 80s and the horror movies that sort of shaped the minds of a generation of filmmakers from that 79 to 85 era was slasher films. And, you know, that was prevalent with like the use of synthesizers and a lot of soundtracks for these movies. The camera work felt very Halloween, very like empty, open suburban spaces where there was just something not right. And I wonder whether or not we've kind of reached a logical end to that self-referentiality or at least that kind of paying homage to the early 80s masters. And now we're kind of like feeling around in the dark for something new. Yeah, I think there's two different kinds of filmmakers, too, that are exploring this space. You know, this year we had Midsommar. That's Ari Aster's second feature film. Mm -hmm. I'll be surprised if his next movie resembles a horror movie at all. Really? You know, Robert Eggers, who made The Witch, just put out The Lighthouse, which is kind of phantasmagoric, but is not really a horror movie. Even Jordan Peele with Us, I didn't really think of Us as a horror movie, more so as a super high concept thriller. Yes. And I feel like that's the direction he's sort of moving in. They're all kind of Hitchcockian or Bergmanian. They're not. They're using horror as a portal to make the kind of stuff that they want. They're not the John Carpenter. I am firmly in the genre of horror or science fiction for the rest of my career. Right. Now, there are still, I think Andy Muschietti, who made the It movies, and Mama, and I think particularly Mike Flanagan, who's kind of an interesting person to talk about on this episode, yeah, sure. who has Dr. Sleep, the Shining sequel coming later. And did Haunting of Hill House and has an, another haunting of 
uh, show on Netflix coming, I think, probably next year. And yes. did Ouija 2, which was I, I loved, which is a Blumhouse movie, yeah. Probably the fastest rising big ticket horror movie director and around. Like, like one of the few horror auteurs who's like, I make horror, you know? Yes, yeah. very clearly. He He's more, he seems um, more closely aligned with, I don't know, like the way that Guillermo del Toro is related to fantasy. He's mm-hmm. related to horror, where it's sort of like, it's a, it's a commentary on what's come before, but it's also its own unique world that he's trying to build and its own unique tone and its own unique look. But I, I am at a little bit of a loss for where the genre goes because I think in part it, A Quiet Place, Get Out, being three of the highest grossing R-rated movies of all time, three of the highest grossing horror movies of all time. They might be one, two, and three, actually. I'm not sure. Pre-adjusted for inflation. I feel like there's dollar signs in studios' eyes about the genre, and that's usually a bad sign. Yeah, these are supposed to be uh, movies that get made with, like, the fewer notes on horror movies, the better. I feel like the fewer, the less interference, I feel like it, too, kind of suffered from that. It was clearly a matter of, you're going to put all these movie stars in this movie, and there's going to have to be service to those movie stars, and you're going to have to service the idea that this is a huge property, rather than just, like, boy, we really caught people unaware with that first one. They didn't think it was going to be that good, you know? And it, I think that had a lot to do with what the word of mouth was, is people coming out of that first weekend and be like, dude, you should go see It. It's really good. Yeah, I think that was even true for the Halloween revival, and I wonder if there will just be significantly less interest in the second Halloween revival movie yeah. coming out next year. It's very hard to say when it comes to that sort of thing. What about for you personally? What are you looking for now in a horror movie when you were putting your list together? Well, I one of the things that is interesting, you mentioned that whether or not Us is a horror or a thriller, uh, I think that that's a really interesting conversation about genre definition, and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I have a couple of things here that you could call a thriller, but I think that there is a certain... Um, concentration on visceral reaction and 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 a, a reliance on eliciting a response from the audience that is to put them in a place of almost panic and put them in a place of anxiety and fear and and you know I wouldn't even say all of these movies are rewatchable but the are they are the experience of watching them was very memorable uh but there's a couple here that I was like you know this is on the this is on the line between a thriller and a horror movie what do you think is the difference I tend to think there has to be something either supernatural or extraordinarily visceral about the movie Mm -hmm. to qualify. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not supernatural, but it is incredibly gory. Yes. And violent. And likewise, a movie like The Innocents, you know, the the 1960s film, is not gory at all, really. It's mostly just sort of a creaking house movie. Yeah. But it is ghostly. And both of those things qualify. When we get into the realm of just... um. There's someone, there's a murderer tracking a potential victim for long stretches of time, but no genuine acts of violence, just this sense of fear. I don't think fear alone qualifies for horror. I think that there are some stylistic and plot-driven tropes that you have to execute Yeah, I think also ultimately it comes down to extremity. You know what I mean? And we've talked about this before. I remember we were sitting down in a a very comfortable movie theater to go see Midsommar. Hilarious. And I think, you know— but without having seen the movie, but now I would say, like, our basic dialogue with one another was Ari Aster stuffed me in a fucking bear carcass <laughs> and played Johnny Greenwood strings in my, until my eardrums explode. Yes. You want to be dominated by a horror movie. Nobody yeah. goes to horror movies for, oh, that was subtly unnerving. I mean, there are some of those that work, but the ones that I really react to are the ones where I realize I've scratched my forearm or I realize, like, my popcorn box exploded because I, I was squeezing it so hard. Yeah, that's a much smarter emotional definition. I think... I've said this before on this show, but I think I'm pretty dead inside and very cynical. (laughs) And and so if you can get me to feel something in a movie theater, even if I'm being 
deeply manipulated, then I'm I'm sort of impressed by that, and I, it'll get me to react in a deeper way. Yeah, and it's not necessarily I want to be cynically pushed around. You know, I don't. It's not jump scares necessarily. It's more like impending dread that is more powerful. I think that the you know me, you, and and Bill Simmons have talked quite a bit about the Conjuring franchise and mm-hmm. kind of how important that is to movies in general. I don't think that the Conjuring two is one of the greatest horror movies ever made necessarily, but I can remember that experience that you're describing of seeing that movie and kind of like my arms tightening against yes. my chest yeah. and the kind of the un- indescribable feeling of pain that is never delivered that a movie like that gives you. So I guess that probably fits into the mold too a little bit, but sometimes you get that feeling in a movie like Seven, uh-huh. which I would say- Is a thriller. Is a thriller. It fits some of the parameters I'm describing, but it's not horror really. Um. I, if we, if you want to get into my list, I think that there's like some good examples here to kind of def- tease out what we're talking about. Let's do it. You, are, do you want? How do you want to do it? You want to deliver it uh, chronologically? Just I'll do. F- I'll do five, five to one. one? Okay. I'll do five to one, and I won't belabor or belabor these because I think that I almost in some cases, if you haven't seen these, the less said about certain plot points, the better. And I don't think that I picked very hugely popular movies here. So the first one that I wanted to do uh, is a movie that I've only seen once. It's called Unfriended. Uh, and it was it came out in uh, 2015, I believe, and um, I think it's only really a movie you can see once. And once you understand the premise, which is essentially it's a um, it's a horror film that takes place on people's computer screens. So it's a group of friends who are gathering on like a Skype call, essentially like a group chat call, a year after the death of a person they went to high school with, and um, I believe high school, like might have been college, but I'm pretty sure it's high school, and. Essentially, like this person was shamed into a suicide. the 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 person was like filmed at a party in uh, and, and filmed being drunk and like soiling themselves. And like the backlash that they experienced online was so bad that they committed suicide. And now that's this person's ghost is haunting these people because, according to the ghost, one of these people was the person who uploaded the video in the first place and led to her uh, her death. It is probably the most like exhausting movie I've seen this decade in terms of what I didn't have any expectations for it. I thought it was like a cool premise, but it, it also, um, it, it just grabs you about the second it starts, you're like, Oh, I understand what's going to, what's going on here. And it, almost in a disturbing way that your brain can process four quadrants of information and can actually like listen to people while also watching a mouse clicking over different apps but the way in which it's essentially just like an Agatha Christie novel, but played out in this hyperdrive, internet-driven way. And it shows about like basically the interconnectivity of social media, our reliance on these apps to stay connected to one another, interface with one another. It's just an incredible piece of filmmaking, even if it's one that you're like, I don't need to revisit that and study it like it's Jaws. Yeah, you can see that it's in that Blumhouse mold that I was describing. Cheaply made, mm-hmm. high concept. Very successful. Made a lot of money on a small budget. Yeah, But it is... It, it also gives you that tightened chest feeling that we're describing. And it's it's very, very clever. And it's also, I think it's one of the first horror movies that felt truly modern yeah. in this decade. It's, I, it could not have been made in any other decade but this one. It's tabs horror. The tech, you know? yeah. Too many tabs. And the tech is still like, oh, that's the old iMessage interface. And there's a few things that you're like, that died. Don't even, it doesn't even occur to me anymore that this would be like that. But... You know, I, I think they did a really nice job casting pretty charismatic actors who nobody knew of. So it wasn't like there's no. Have those people done anything since then? Uh, I probably TV stuff, but I, I don't remember. I don't remember seeing any of them since then. So number five would be Unfriended. That's a that's a very good one. Is that the only Blumhouse movie on your list? Yes, I okay. believe so. Yeah, do you see that as sort of the 
the memorialization of what they were able to accomplish. I definitely think that that's they're the two things that I always think about with them are little things like this where they're like, here, let's spend a million dollars on something. And the the profit margin is like twenty five million dollars. And you never know what you're going to get with them. But we give younger filmmakers pretty much carte blanche within that budget. And the other one is the we'll have Kevin Bacon star in this or Ethan Hawke star in this movie like Sinister. And there will be profit participation for them probably. And it really works for them financially to do it. And by that same token, they can do a lot of stuff in these kinds of movies that they might not be able to in a Marvel movie. So if this is your last Blumhouse movie, that means The Purge is not on your list. Yeah, That means Happy Death Day. I think a movie we both like. Very much so. Yeah, Not on your list. No. Does that mean Get Out is not on your list? Get Out is not on my list. My lord. The Visit, not on your list. Nope. I Am Night Shyamalan. Insidious, no. No. Sinister, no. No. Halloween, no. No. Okay, so those are some of the really heavy hitters. Yeah, I, I didn't really pick horror movies that I thought were events. I picked horror movies that freaked me out and that I loved. Interesting. So this is, this is I wouldn't necessarily call this like Chris Ryan's bulletproof undefeated top five that you can... Shit, we're going to need to rewrite the SEO the, on that. <laughs> log off the internet if you, don't, if you don't agree. Bobby, we need a new title. Um, the number four one? Yeah, go ahead. You're next. Yeah, I love this movie. I think Adam Wingard, it's, there's an argument to be made that Adam Wingard is at least the most consistent horror director of the decade. I'll take some issue with this, but it's an okay. interesting idea. Adam Wingard, former guest on this show. Yes. Uh, to, to, let's talk. Tell, tell us about it. So him. your next, I believe, comes out in 11 or 12, made for a million dollars, is basically The Strangers on Steroids. It's a bunch of pretty shitty people gathering for a family reunion. They all hate each other. And uh, a guy goes to the window and he hears a weird creaking noise outside and gets shot in the eye with an arrow. And then they basically are trapped inside of this uh, upstate mansion being terrorized by, by people wearing stuffed animal masks uh, and running all over. And there's a bunch of twists. Uh, Amy Simons is in there. I think Joe Swanberg is in this movie. He certainly is. Uh, this is what you were talking about, the mumble gore. This is sort of an extension of that a little bit. I think that it's a bunch of people who ordinarily would be in two uh, late 20s artists trying to find love in New York City. They're like, fuck this, we're going to make a horror movie. And it's really balls to the wall. It's really gory. It's very funny, but it's really, really, really dedicated to what's the craziest things that could happen if we trap these people in a house. So Wingard is interesting. That person that you described yes. getting an arrow in the face was the aforementioned Ty, Ty West, yes. uh, who is a part of a cohort of filmmakers who came up around that same time along with Joe Swanberg. Yeah, and they, if, you're, if you're curious to see them all at work, I think VHS, the anthology, has got features work from a lot of these guys. Yeah, and the, the matriarch of the family portrayed in the movie is Barbara Crampton, very yes. famous 80s scream queen and is um, kind of legendary in the horror genre. Wingard is simultaneously the most creative and somehow most disappointing auteur of this movement to me. Okay, so your next and the guest, I think, are unequivocally like very good movies. Yes. And then I I am... The guest immediately follows your next. Yes. And I think when the guest comes out, people are like, dude, this guy's for real. I was like, is this James Cameron? (laughs) Yeah. I I was really, really excited about him. I think we saw the guest together. And I think, yeah, and it was a little bit more like Terminator 1 that, and that I think we expected but still really awesome Micah Monroe's in that with Dan Stevens and then uh, I'm not sure what comes in between but he eventually this is one of my favorite little wrinkles of, of the last decade is the attempted surprise release and so he does this movie called The Woods which for months is like Adam Wingard's making this haunted forest movie it's called The Woods nobody knows what it's about nobody wants, and it turns out it's a Blair Witch reboot or a Blair Witch sequel really 
And um, it is, I don't think good, but the last 30 minutes of Blair Witch is the most scared I think I may have ever been in a movie theater. Oh my gosh. It's fucking terrifying. That's, it's essentially... Is that on your list? No. But okay. I'm just saying, because it's it's just the sequence. I'm just, it's the same thing. There's a, there's a part of Exorcist 3 that is scarier than any other moment in the Exorcist trilogy, but I wouldn't say Exorcist 3 is better than Exorcist. We should do an Exorcist 3 pot at some point. That's a Dude, fascinating movie. George C. Scott just playing with house money. Ball, balls to the yeah, wall. Yeah, just like movie. with the, like just undoing the Oreos like Malkovich <laughs> the entire time. Um, but yeah, a Blair Witch. And then he does Death Note. And I think he's working on a Godzilla movie now. So next spring, Godzilla versus King Kong is coming out. He was here for Death Note, right. which is a, an adaptation of a famous uh, Japanese series that I just didn't think was successful. Right. And it was a kind of an early Netflix original that had some cool ideas and some cool visual wrinkles in it. Yes. Great Willem Dafoe performance as sort of the the big bad of the yeah, movie. Yeah, he's like the fairy or something yeah. like that, right? Um, but it t- didn't totally work. Blair Witch, I, I, I couldn't connect with it. Yeah, I'm being totally <laughs> honest. His, his, the movie that got I my like attention. How sincerely you're trying to reason. <laughs> you're like, yeah, that Blair Witch sequel. It just emotionally didn't <laughs> didn't resonate with me, but I appreciate that. I'm Cisco and your Ebert in yeah. this situation, I guess. Uh, have you seen a horrible way to die? His his like breakthrough film. I think so. Okay, for those of you who have not seen it possibly one of the most fucked movies of all time, but absolutely riveting, featuring your girl, Amy Simons, and also written by Simon Barrett, who wrote yes. The Guest, and yes. who I believe wrote Your he Next wrote your as next well. Too. And their sort of trilogy of movies, I find to be incredibly um, fascinating, well-made, yeah. rigorous, but also kind of nodding to the genres that have come before it, the, the, the landmarks that have come before it. He's an interesting guy. So that's number four for you. That's right. What's number three? Three and two, I had a pretty hard time uh, separating and I flip-flopped a lot. And to, to be fair, I think I flip-flopped a lot with one, two, and three. But just for the sake of putting these all in order, I'm going to do it, is The Invitation. Yeah, this is a great movie. Yeah, it's Kareem Kusama's, uh, I believe it was 2015 mm-hmm. uh, film. Um, and one, one of the things that I think this and one other movie on this list share is that for different horror films, you may have a deeper connection or a different kind of connection with the film depending on how the setup maybe lands with you or quite candidly, like whether or not it resonates. And as a veteran of very many Los Angeles dinner parties, Corinne Kusama just gets this motif right. She gets this, this like setting totally right of the, you're with your significant other, you're going up, there's, you have some trepidation, some social anxiety for whatever reasons. Obviously this movie, there's a lot more melodramatic stuff. Like there's a dead child and a breakup involved, but, um, the way that she kind of calibrates it makes everything that happens. I, I honestly think that this is, it's not in the same necessarily level of importance as Rosemary's Baby, but that's the movie that I would compare it to in terms of this is a relatively realistic situation that just keeps getting altered more and more until the end when it's absolutely pandemonium. So Rosemary's Baby is about Satan mm-hmm. raping a woman who then gives birth to Satan's yes. son. But for most of it, it's about an apartment building. Right. And it's about weird neighbors. The invitation is, is it, is it horror? That's a great question. I think the, the, uh, the claustrophobic nature that they can't get out of the house, to me, makes it horror. Okay. Uh, I think the, the, the way that the house becomes this prison and it's sort of metaphorical and then especially the twist at the end, it becomes much more of a horror kind of situation rather than just like a psychological thriller because horror I think requires a degree of suspension of disbelief and 
what you wind up doing is there's multiple times in the invitation where you can say, okay, but they would have left at this point. Or okay, but somebody gets on the phone here. Or okay, like he's allowed to wander through the house, but they can't do this or that. And uh, I, I thought that that's what qualified it. Is this this? There's a degree to which the emphasis is so put on these people are trapped together. How many dinner parties in Los Angeles have you attended mm-hmm. in which you felt like the Logan Marshall Green character from this movie? <laughs> <laughs> where you felt like everything that's happening happening around me is not right. Well, one of my favorite parts about this movie is that Logan Marshall Green and Michael Wiesman play uh, Spider-Man hot guy meme. Like, it's like hot guys, but the Spider-Man pointing at each other. Yes, they are. I think I actually, when I rewatched this, I was like, I always thought Logan Marshall Green or Michael Wiesman was in this movie, not both. And when, like, there's times when they're looking at each other and it's just like, I can hear Mallory Rubin crying because it's just two smoking hot bearded guys. Yeah, but it's one guy who's Tencent Tom Hardy and one guy who's Tencent Bradley Cooper. Like, it's amazing that they're both the knockoff version of a yeah. more popular actor in Hollywood. There was, I think originally the people in this movie were supposed to be Zachary Quinto and Topher Grace. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I actually would have enjoyed that energy a yeah. lot. Who's who, though? I'm not sure. I'm not sure who was cast as who. Uh, but this is just a phenomenal movie. Uh, I, I thought that the way that she shot this house, the way that the the set design works, it, it's just very knowing of of its uh, of its location and setting, and it's it's really disturbing. It's a great pick. Also features maybe the single most satisfying final shot Dude, to me. The, the red light. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, all right, so number two. I'm going to go with a movie that I think is straight up horror and it is It Follows. So um, David Robert Mitchell's breakthrough movie starring Michael Monroe. And um, I love this movie because of some of the things I was talking about. If David Robert Mitchell happens to be listening to The Big Picture, I apologize for comparing this to John Carpenter because when I read interviews with you during It Follows, you seemed annoyed that people kept bringing up John Carpenter. Let me just stop you there. If David Robert Mitchell is listening, and I hope that he is, I want I would like to say one under the Silver Lake masterpiece to come on the show and talk about yeah. it. I just I'd like you to come on the show and talk about this movie that I really like. Maybe I can that bait is misunderstood. Him. Should I bait him? Yes, let's yeah. bait him. We'll we'll add him we'll openly, <laughs> aggressively yeah. uh, bully him. It worked for Ennis Cantor on desktop. That's so true. Maybe we should be doing that for all guests going forward. Yeah. Nevertheless, it follows, I agree, completely borderline masterpiece horror movie. Keep 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 talking. Probably the most satisfying movie on this list for me. Uh, when it started, I was like, I hope this movie never ends. This sort of vision of a post-industrial dystopian Detroit where there's nobody there except for Micah Monroe and her six friends. And they're driving around in these beat-up classic cars. And, you know, most horror movies from the 80s and 90s, the ones that we grew up with, sexuality is a sin punishable by death. Anybody who has sex in a horror movie is is just the first person to die and it's the virtuous final girl who makes it to the end. And this sort of inverts that, but it also, it talks a lot about um, the pain of secrecy, I think, and like the pain of of believability. Um, It's a pretty prescient movie in a lot of ways in terms of what would come in the years to come in terms of like Me Too and the idea of believing women, the idea of believing victims, because a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie is just basically like people, it's basically Micah Monroe's, her character Jay is cursed because she's had sexual intercourse and she's literally cursed in this movie. People think, have talked about this being a parable for STDs. I don't, I, I don't think it's, I think it's a, a nightmare movie and that's what makes it a horror movie aside from the obvious, there's just straight up some amazing jump scares in this. Incredible soundtrack, uh, beautiful cinematography, just uh, pound for pound, probably the best made movie on this list. Interesting. And and I, I, I a real rewatchable horror movie. So are you surprised that 
Under the Silver Lake was his next film because his previous film, The Myth of the American Sleepover, is not horror Mm -hmm. at all, but does have a lot in common with It Follows in terms of its its sort of atmosphere, the way that it uses young actors and actresses to portray a kind of ennui and terror at the same time. Under the Silver Lake is a much different kind of movie with a much different kind of energy, more of a detective movie, more of like a hipster examination of paranoia and looking for coded messages it actually seems to be um more of an internet movie sure in a lot of ways a yeah. very modern kind of thing it follows to me feels like something that i know you always respond to you and your wife always respond to which is kind of like take me back to 1986 when teenagers are hanging out yes you know that's like a feeling that it evokes for you are you surprised with kind of the direction he's moved in well i i think a lot of these directors i mean you talked about eggers i mean uh even corinne kusma like because she, I, I she directed destroyer after uh invitation i i think that there is like a real tension in, in, in being defined as a horror director and staying in that genre. And, and, and I don't know that there's a lot of directors who are lifelong horror directors. You know, Wes Craven, I mean, do you, it, it, that's not a bad career Perhaps to have for sure. you've not seen The Music of My Heart or whatever that Meryl Streep movie he oh, made that's was. Right. Yeah. That's right. Wes Craven always had a very complicated relationship to horror. He didn't want to be known strictly as a horror maestro. So uh, you don't see a lot of people who are like, I'm, I'm content being the master of horror. So I think that pulling away is pretty natural. Okay, number one. So number one, I think there will probably be some disagreement about whether this is a horror movie. But if oh, it's con- if it's considered a horror movie, it's the scariest one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. It's Green Room. Um, I'll just say I do not think of this as a horror movie necessarily. Yeah, but I'm 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 ready for your case. So um, Green Room, while the characters are very interesting, and I think it's got an absolutely phenomenal ensemble. It's directed by Jeremy Saulnier, who I think most people. Uh, would know him from, uh, honestly, from his true detective work because that's probably when his name got thrown around the most. But this was sort of his, it's his follow-up uh, to Blue Ruin, uh, which was this micro-budgeted thriller that was set in, I think, North Carolina. Incredible movie. And it's an incredible, incredible movie. But uh, Green Room was almost like his like mainstream debut. It's got Patrick Stewart and Anton Yelchin and Aaliyah Shawkat is in it and Imogen Poots and... Uh, the setup for it, in case you don't know, is um, Anton Yelchin and his friends are in a punk rock band touring the Northwest, and they are playing a bar at a town, which, uh, you know, unfortunately is not uncommon in the punk rock circles, or at least it wasn't back in the early to, in late 1990s when I was around there more, where you would get some pretty unsavory characters like, uh, like white power guys, like hanging around in punk rock circles. And it perfectly captures the desperation and uh, anxiety of being on the road in that way. So these guys are just basically traveling around in a van, playing their shows at like these really shitty clubs and bars. They go play this in this rural bar out in Oregon. Uh, and it turns out, I think it's Oregon, and it turns out to be a, a white power group's hangout bar, like a white power like Sort of an enclave. Gang, yeah. yeah. And that white power gang is led by Jean-Luc Picard, who puts in just like a straight up, like Hannibal Lecter performance. Purely menacing. Unbelievable performance from him. Yes. And uh, the setup is they witness a murder and are stuck in this club and are being attacked by white power, punk rockers. And it's fucking terrifying. Now, it is, I think, by the letter of the law, a thriller. But by but what I was saying earlier is the idea is that the entire investi- the entire movie is about desperation and tension. It's not about Anton Yelchin learning anything about himself or you know, uh, any kind of like character bonding. I mean, there is some, but it's about survival and the purity of its, of its intent, I think makes it almost horror in 
in its execution, if that and makes sense. It does. And in in my definition the, about the visceral aspect of it, this is one of the most spine-tingling, gory films I've ever seen. The, the actual physical limbs being torn apart yeah. in this movie is very upsetting. And there's a scene where... Okay, so uh, if you haven't seen Green Room... And go watch it if you have the stomach for it. If you, but here's here's I'm just going to describe something. There is a moment where these these five or six characters have been trapped in this green room, and they basically have. There's only one door. There's no other exit, and they're stuck in there. And basically, they're getting weighted out. And they're like, we're going to have to make a run for it. And the buildup and execution of when they open the door is the fucking most terrifying thing you will ever see. The, it, it feels so real and so freaky and the injuries people sustain and the, the things people have to do to get out are so intense. Uh, I think it is that slightly altered reality thing that I fi- always respond to with these movies. So I had a list of runners-up and Green Room made my list of, of runners-up as did The Invitation. Mm-hmm. And I think that those two movies should almost be recategorized okay. into what we might call terror. Interesting. At The Ringer, we have a Slack channel called Hashtag Terror. But it's usually for like toenail injuries, right? Yes, but I feel like there is a kind of convulsion (laughs) that those movies create, but they're not exactly in the strictly defined Nightmare on Elm Street horror style. So you think that there has to be something almost supernatural, like the Get Out... Well, I don't want to be a fascist about it. No, you're not. I mean, I think that's the cool thing about horror is that I, I don't even know if you would even say Green Room was even marketed as a horror movie. It might have been more successful if it were. In fact, while you're talking, I'm going to see if iTunes has it in the horror genre. Okay, so you're going to ask me to vamp right now. Nevertheless, other movies that I have in my runners-up include What We Do in the Shadows, which is also not strictly horror. Yeah, It's a it comedy, is. but it's a comedy about vampires that has now become a successful television show on FX from Taika Waititi. Thriller. Uh, Listed as a thriller. thriller. Yeah. Okay, so your list which you worked hard on, is null and void. Well, You've I mean, wasted our time here. I disagree with A24's c- categorization. <laughs> is, is it iTunes to blame? It's probably is iTunes. It, is it Apple? Shall, probably. shall we call Tim Cook here on the big picture? <laughs> Tim Apple. <laughs> Tim, step it up. Free green room. A <laughs> um, couple of other movies. You mentioned Ouija Origin of Evil, which mm-hmm. is Flanagan's Ouija sequel. Good movie. Um, the Purge. I remember loving it in theaters. remember feeling like it had as much to do with horror as a movie like Death Wish. Yes. Or... Um, What's the William Devane Rolling Thunder? Oh, yeah. You know, like the yeah, coming back from Vietnam movie? Yeah. Like, it was as kind of nasty and violent and crazed, but also it's it kind of about something. I You know, I have a couple of runners-up as well. Uh, my runners-up, though, I would say reliably, the B-minus version of a horror movie is my favorite kind of B-minus movie. Like, I can't stand B-minus dramas. Yes. Like, I'm just like, this is fine. But, like, I just, I'm too old to, like, really get into this. A B-minus horror movie, I, there's a thousand of them where, like, they're all stark, stuck in a parking lot where the gates have closed. And I watched it one night, and I was like, this is pretty good. Uh, one of those would be, for instance, The Crazies. Good movie. Uh, remake. Is, uh, a remake starring two of my faves, Timothy Oliphant and Rada Mitchell. Uh, <laughs> Rada I think Mitchell. it was Breck Eisner directed that. Sure, that sounds right. Is that Michael Eisner's kid, right? And he directed Sahara. Let's go with Dude, it. Dude, come on. Big picture. Breck Eisner, come on big picture. <laughs> Breck Eisner, I've never heard of you. Your name is Breck. <laughs> but I, I wish you well. Check my work. Michael Breckenridge Breck Eisner is an American <laughs> film and television director. Directed Sahara with Matthew McConaughey. And then directed The Crazies, which what? is about 
Wait, wait. Before you go into that, let's just read his 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 uh, his credits really quickly. Okay. So he did direct the 2005 film Sahara. He also directed uh, The Crazies in 2010. His last film. Five years in between like PTA. There were five years. And then there were another five years until his next film, which is a little gem called The Last Witch Hunter, starring Vin Diesel, uh-huh. which you may consider horror. <laughs> and it says here that he's got a TBA for The Karate Kid 2. Oh. So he's really spreading his seed <laughs> across genre. Yes. It's impressive. Anyhow, you were saying about The Crazies. The Crazies is by no means an American masterpiece, but is more deeply satisfying than like 80% of the movies I saw this decade. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Um, any other runners-up you want to mention? Stakeland. Yeah. You know, I've not connected with this one as much as you have, but do your so pitch. Jim Nichol, who recently directed In the Shadow of the Moon, a Netflix movie, and this is a really, really good post-apocalyptic there's vampires running all over the country now and this band of misfits are traveling together trying to keep each other alive great Kelly McGillis performance in this one is Kelly McGillis in Stakeland? no let me just double check okay we're doing a lot of double checking here on this episode I'll do one more runner up it's called Starry Eyes which I think falls firmly into that B- thing that you're talking about very small movie made by two guys Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Woodmire who actually made the somewhat successful Pet Cemetery remake Mm -hmm. earlier this year but Starry Eyes in particular is a nice double feature, I think, with The Invitation because it's a good example of the anxiety, terror, and... Would you say House of the Devil is the godfather of those movies? Oh, interesting. Because House of the Devil is 2009, I yes. think. And so it just misses the cut. But that was the first one that I remember seeing where I was like, what's going on here? Like, you know, I think she dances to like... Like it's an 80s classic, seven five three oh nine or something, or like, and and it's very eighties, but has great twist. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that movie also, like Starry Eyes, is a bit slow and a bit more ponderous. Like Gerwig's in that, is in House of the Devil. Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham's in it. Okay, yeah, yeah. it's uh, actually no. Are they both in it? I th- I know Gerwig is a- actually Gerwig is the first. Gerwig is in it. Yeah, Lena Dunham is in Ty West Follow Up, The Innkeepers. That's right. So he was right with Sarah he, Paxton. He yeah. was befriending all of the exciting young female talents in New York yeah. at the time. Well, because they were all doing indie movies, like where they were like Hannah goes up the stairs. Yes. Uh, here's what I'll do. I'll run through my list. Okay. Last year, I wrote a piece called the Horror Oscars, in which I gave for across 40 years the best horror movie a prize. So many of these, if you read that piece, you've already heard me. When you look at that, are you like that was a that was time well spent? Because I thought that was an amazing achievement. <laughs> But I, it's like, it's one of those things where I wonder whether when you look back at it before this pod, you're like, did another person write this? Let me put it this way. We're all dying every day. Right. You know? I'm Not just, Breck Eisner, though. I'm just trying to create <laughs> a legacy of internet content that people will enjoy forevermore. If they, if they want to know about some good horror movies yeah. to watch, they can go to that piece. They can go to this podcast. Right. You know, they can at me on Twitter. I'll happily respond. Hey, bro, check out this movie. Right. It's all just, it's part of the Matrix. And I'm flowing through it like Neo. I was just trying to like tear down the fourth wall here a little bit. No, you've just embarrassed me greatly <laughs> on my own show. Uh, 2010 Black... The fucking content, Sean! <laughs> Fat PTA Heartbreaking. is back. Yeah. Uh, there's so much content. 2010, Black Swan. Do you consider this a horror movie? Yes, but I do not like it. Tell me why. It's just like tonally not my bag. You know? Are you out on it, Darren Aronofsky? I respected Mother a lot. Because I was just you like, respected mother, yeah. Because he went for it. Okay, I mean he goes for it every movie. He you know mm-hmm. he even met, went for it in Noah. Uh, he certainly did. Uh, <laughs> he tried to tell the tale of Noah's Ark. Yeah, but 
um, I, I did. I wasn't. I've never revisited Black Swan. Like what watching about? Natalie Portman's feet break is just is not my idea of a good time. It is literally the feeling I was describing of wanting right. to squeeze myself until I break. Uh, it, I think it's one of the more um, painful to watch yes. movies, and I don't know if it's necessarily scary, but it is upsetting. Yeah. in a unique way. Twenty eleven. You're next. We've already discussed it. Check it out. It's a fucking banger. 2012, The Cabin in the Woods. Okay, I wanted to put this on my list, but then I had, here's my thing. Is The Cabin in the Woods scary? Or is it delightful and surprising and very interesting and thought-provoking? Let me me ask you this. Is Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi, Oh, I thought you were going to say Marvel's Francis Ford Coppola. No, not Bram Stoker's, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Dracula. Okay. No, is is the original Dracula film, not Nosferatu, Dracula, uh-huh. from Universal Studios. Is that a scary movie? It would have been scary like the day it came out, for sure. That's not what like, I asked you. Uh, no, it's not scary to me. But it's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Cabin in the Woods is the same. Okay. I think it is representational of horror. I feel like I got checkmated just there. Well, that's what you get for insulting me about the piece I wrote last year. I'm not insulting you. I'm not insulting you. I think it was an amazing accomplishment. <laughs> now you're just overstating things and making it worse. Uh, I think that The Cabin in the Woods is like, perhaps not scary, because through the first 40 minutes of the film before the twist is revealed, and if you've not seen Cabin in the Woods, I would encourage you to do so. It is at worst a very clever and entertaining movie. But through that first 40 minutes, it feels purposefully unscary. Uh-huh. It is so trite as to be recognizably trite. But then when you're not totally sure where things are going in that sort of middle 20, I do think it gets a little unnerving. Right. Before when things when are all like the different curses are kind of coming to life. Yes. Yeah. So I think it kind of works in that regard. In 2012 or 13, when I was working at Grantland, I spoiled Cabin in the Woods in like an NBA blog post for like thousands, are you, are thousands you, of people. Are you here to atone? And I, I feel really bad for that. Do you think thousands of people actually read that blog post? <laughs> I got like at least a dozen mentions being like, fuck you, bro. Those, I didn't know that. Those are all my burners. <laughs> uh, no, that's actually really bad because it's not the kind of movie you want to spoil. I thought I thought we were kind of like, this movie's out there. Also, that was kind of my thing. I was like, I'm just going to mix and match different medias, you know? That was kind of your thing. Yeah, like you remember like when I used to blog, like I used to just be like, and then this, this like grabbing this disparate thing that you wouldn't necessarily connect with the NBA or the NFL. Or you whatever. mean like Matthew Barney <laughs> mixing medias? Right. Like the Craymaster cycle? Okay. Um, <laughs> the Cabin in the Woods is a wonderful movie despite Chris's uh, desire to ruin it for other people. Mm-hmm. 2013, The Conjuring. I, th- I think it's a pretty amazing studio product. I've not disagreed with a single one of your picks so far. Oh, thank you. Um, I think everybody knows what The Conjuring is. We probably don't need to be labor. Low-key, incredible Lily Taylor performance in that movie. Oh, yeah. So Definitely. good. So good. as it's, it's not easy to do possessed ghost without seeming shriekish and also, over the like, top. Also, like, doing that without a net because there wasn't this expectation or understanding of The Conjuring Extended Universe totally. and all the Annabelles and stuff. Yeah. It was a first. And they've spun up so much gold out of that first film. 2014, it follows. Uh-huh. We're on the same page. 2015, The Witch. If you're a listener of this show, you heard an interview I did with Robert Eggers earlier this week. I think he's a really interesting dude. Mm-hmm. And I think he's like got iconic movies in him if he gets what he wants to do. Who knows if he's going to be able to make the kinds of movies he wants to make. It's, it's hard out here. The Witch was a weirdly successful movie yeah. given that it was essentially a slow-moving, methodical portrait of a Nathaniel Hawthorne-esque puritanical New England America that happened to have a witch in it that stole a baby. And the goat, right? 
and a goat. Yeah. Yes. Black Phillip. That, guy, that, that goat went viral. I think that goat went goat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't know. I, I think that it's a movie that a lot of people saw and it did well, but also a lot of people didn't like. Horror movies are very hard to please. Yeah. Uh, there's a very vocal contingent of very diverse opinions about horror movies online. And so none of the movies that we have talked about so far, I think, is, is not without its detractors. There are people who think that The Witch is self-serious. There are people who think Cabin in the Woods is like fake horror for like indie rock nerds who don't really want to get dirty with like real horror. Sometimes there I'm, are people who think that. that it follows is like, just like, carpenter pastiche you know like mm-hmm. I, I think that every one of these movies it's like you're gonna find if you ask a hundred different horror fans their definition of horror all of them are gonna disagree with mine or yours it follows uh i think is a pr- interesting precursor to the witch because that's when we started hearing what i think is kind of an ugly phrase which is elevated horror yes that somehow yes the studio that produces the film or the kind of auteur aspirations of the filmmaker somehow make it more valuable which i think is something that you and i don't really Mm-hmm. And it seems like kind of shitty film critics speak, or maybe even not even film critics speak, but just the way that people who write about box office have to find a way to kind of write about right. horror movies that aren't just splatter murder movies. Nevertheless, I do think that The Witch does follow a lot of the traditional formulas. It is an incredibly upsetting and unnerving movie through the first 45 minutes, mm-hmm. so long as you're a patient viewer. And then it becomes something much more folkloric. I would say, and pretty strange. Um, but I would highly recommend that movie if you haven't seen it. I would throw, do, would you consider Kill List like another movie like that? Kill List, I think, has more in common with Green Room. Yes. Which, that's Ben Wheatley's movie, which is a total masterpiece. I don't think of it as horror. I guess you could say that it is. It, it just, that's it's a movie more, that I feels, guess mythological. Yeah, you know? sure. But it also, it feels like somebody has two fingers on the back of your spine the yes. whole movie. It's so... Or, or as if someone were setting off a, a high-pitched ring in one ear mm-hmm. for 20 minutes. Like, it just makes you so uncomfortable. Yeah. Which is an amazing accomplishment in, unto itself. 2016, Don't Breathe. Uh, another one that I will never watch again, but will never forget watching. Um, one you, of the more disturbing sequences I've ever seen. In have you movie. ever, have you used a turkey baster since seeing that film? No, I'm, I'm off turkey. Okay, I don't want to say too much more about the movie. It's Fede Alvarez's uh, movie. He also remade The Evil Dead, and he made a very unfortunate um, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo sequel last year. Oh, is that bad? It's, it did, really did not work at all. Who was the, who was the girl in that Claire one? Foy. Oh, yeah. Not what you want for Claire. 2017 Get Out. Yeah. Let's talk about Get Out. Is it the best horror movie of the last 10 years, even if it isn't your favorite? hmm You think so? Oh, yeah. No question. I mean, I, I also, everything you could want from a horror movie, if not a movie in general, you know? And, that, and also... A lot of the movies that I put on my list, I think even casual horror film film fans might not have heard of some of them. One of the cool things about Get Out was it becoming a conversation topic. It becoming uh, part of the way we talk to one another is using the you know the upside down as like a as a, a reference to things. The sunken place, the yeah, upside down place, is yeah. Stranger Things. <laughs> is that a horror movie? Well, I think that's where horror went. You know what I mean? It's like people going to do things like Stranger Things doing things like American Horror Story. Interesting. Yeah. Those kinds of movies and TV shows have nothing to do with I really, my... that was a self-own to confuse the sunken place with Upside Down. Well, it just reveals what a basic guy you are and just what an <laughs> elevated horror thinker I am, um, which has been a great outcome of this podcast so far. Yeah. I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> 2018 and 2019, 
are both Ari Aster movies for me, Hereditary and Midsommar. Can I ask you what the runners-up were for those years? Hmm. Well, 2019, we don't know yet. Doctor Sleep, not out in the world. I would say that's probably the biggest contender against Midsommar for me. 2018, let's pull this piece up then. I mean, what, what, what was it? I mean, A Quiet Place? Yes, although I would, I would put A Quiet Place, well, I don't think it's as good as Get Out. I think it's had the same sort of, wow, it's really awesome that everybody's going to the movie theater and you can hear a pin drop throughout this entire thing. The First Purge, The Nun, Unfriended Dark Web. Pretty I don't good. think these are great movies. Yeah. I think that they're pretty good, but I think once you put them up against... Unfriended Dark Web's really fucked up. It is. It's, it's about very, people buying snuff movies on the dark web. It's it's sort of a, an unofficial sequel to 8mm. Yeah. The remember 8mm? Yeah, I work for Bill. Yeah, I remember 8mm. Um, what do you think Ari Aster's going to do? Well, I think that Midsommar is obviously such an extension of his personal life that if he finds a little bit more happiness and stability, I would imagine that he would not make a movie like that and not make a horror movie like that. I think that... Uh, I, I venture to say that Hereditary is probably rooted in some of his ideas about childhood and parenthood. And Midsommar is rooted in his ideas about romantic relationships. I think he's been pretty straightforward about that. Yeah. yeah. Imagine being Ari Aster's ex. Yes. It's a tough year. <laughs> it's really not what you want. Yeah. It's just like... I, I mean, to be I get, burned alive inside of a bear. You don't want that. It's <laughs> something you literally don't want. What do you think? I mean, I feel like you have your finger on the pulse more of what he would do next. You think he wouldn't make a horror movie next? You, um, let me ask you this. Does that bum you out? I think he is committed to the cinema of discomfort, which is good by me. I think if you watch any of his short films, you know that even if they're not strictly horror, he's really interested in pain mm-hmm. and trauma and what comes back what comes from our past and affects our future. Yeah. And I think he'll be into that no matter what happens, but he's he's one of the few crafts people, even out of this list of 10 movies or the movies that you've talked about, who I'm like, he probably could do anything if he wanted to. He has an incredible eye and he has a really interesting sense of pacing and his movies tend to swallow me up. Yeah. Um, uh, Ari Aster knows I'm, what a big fan of his work I am. Um, any other lingering thoughts about the genre before we depart? to make more content. I was kind of wondering how you were feeling because you, know, you mentioned the elevated uh, genre and I, I noticed a couple of these um, movies were from A24. Mm-hmm. And the whether or not you think that this will continue to be, I, I think, a reliable revenue driver for smaller studios and bigger studios and whether or not, you know, it obviously, I think, cost quite a bit of money. It too did at least. Uh, I would imagine that it ma- made a fair amount of money too. Um, whether you think that We'll still see smaller studios investing, you know, modest amounts of money to make profitable horror movies. And whether you see the Universals, the Paramounts, the Disneys or the Foxes or whatever, uh, making these big blockbuster ones. I'm more interested in the latter question. The former question, I think, well, that will always be true. Yeah. Now, whether it's actually the A24s of the world making those movies, I don't know. But I always think small studios know that they can likely turn a, a solid profit leaning into horror. It's really the only genre that never expired. You know, everything kind of has life cycles mm-hmm. of dominance. Action movies ran the 80s. Superhero movies run right now. Yeah. Horror movies have never gone away. They The thing they haven't done is what I mentioned earlier, which is they've never gotten this big. Yeah. They've never gotten this unwieldy in a way. It Chapter 2, I think, was the first time it felt like maybe the genre was out of control. And I'll be curious to see if studios continue to d- double down. You know, we're getting A Quiet Place 2 next year. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think Peel will make another horror movie? 
I hope so. I hope so. I He's clearly got his heart in that, and he's producing the Candyman remake, which mm-hmm. is coming out next year. But again, that's that's iterative. That's not original. Us, for all of its detractors and all the people who are saying, oh, this doesn't make sense or whatever, that was an original movie. Yeah. It was an original script and an original idea. And I love that he did that, and I hope he keeps doing that. So we'll just have to wait and see. Chris, you... Uh, you fitfully scared of me now that I've bullied you through the end of this podcast? <laughs> I like I like that I like feeling things. <laughs> I do too. Chris Ryan, thank you so much for joining us here on the big picture. Now let's go to my conversation with the Dolomite is my name screenwriters, Scott Alexander and Larry Karazuski. I am delighted to be joined by Scott Alexander and Larry Karazuski. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks. Woo! I've been such a big fan of the screenplays you've been writing for the last, I don't know, 30 or so years. I'm <laughs> hoping you can take us right to the beginning of when you first met. Oh, wow. Help me understand how you guys built this great partnership. Um, Scott and I met in line our freshman year at USC Film School um, in the line where you get your card that, that gets you food for the, oh, for the, for the semester. Food. The uh, meal plan. The meal plan. Thank you. And um, uh, he was just a person in front of me, and we started talking, and it turned out he was a film student, and I was a film student, and uh, he's from Los Angeles, and I'm from Indiana. And we just started talking about like weird movies we liked. And actually at that, uh, it was a very L.A.-centric thing, but at that first conversation, he started telling me about a place called The New Art, which is a, was a revival theater in Los Angeles. And that week, they happened to be showing movies by a guy named Herschel Gordon Lewis, who was kind of the original gore filmmaker. He was to blood and guts what Russ Meyer was to boobs. And uh, <laughs> I actually knew Herschel Gordon Lewis's movies quite a bit because I grew up in the in the Midwest and they played drive-ins and and they were these. I mean, they're absolutely you know horrifying films. And Scott was Scott knew had read about them but didn't know about them. So we bonded over Herschel Gordon Lewis, which is kind of strange considering where our career went and how we became uh, people who celebrate these kind of exploitation filmmakers. But literally, our very first conversation was about that. And what was strange is that I had an extra bed in my room, and he was in a room that had uh, too many people. And so we sort of manipulated the system, and uh, we became roommates freshman year. Did you sense a creative spark immediately when you first started hanging out as friends in school? Um, not a creative spark. We just liked a lot of the same shit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like like Larry saying, he, he was familiar with a lot of this weird stuff from Midwestern drive-ins. These were things that I was more fascinated with that I had read a lot about. Uh, I mean, and you know, when, when you're a high school or growing up in LA, you, you you didn't spend a lot of time down on uh, Broadway at the grindhouses, <laughs> you know, which you know it's four movies a night, and then you can sleep there for free, which is where you would see these movies in LA. What were the kind of movies you were seeing when you were a kid then? Um, Sort of the big Hollywood studio productions. I, you were a Marx Brothers fan. I love the Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers kind of defined my childhood. I mean, I certainly went to, uh, you know, the Towering Inferno and, <laughs> and the Shaggy Dog and the World's Greatest Athlete, like everybody else. Uh, my favorite movie is What's Up, Doc, a screwball comedy from the early seventies. But the Marx Brothers were really important to me, uh, and I used to dress up as Groucho. I got to see Groucho once. We, my family snuck into the premiere of Animal Crackers and Westwood. The re-premiere. The no, no, re-premiere. No. The that would have been re-premiere. difficult. Yeah, yeah, very, very difficult. Back it premiered twice. It premiered, <laughs> premiered in 1930, then it premiered again in 1974. Uh, and so I, 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 I loved old classic Hollywood comedy. So I, I liked old classic Hollywood comedy, and I liked uh, 
junky regional exploitation, do-it-yourself filmmaking, and I was making Super 8 movies in high school. And there was a whole, when I say community, it's not like today with the internet community. It was magazine subscribers. It was Super 8 Filmmaker. And it was it was these magazines that would tell you, you know, how you can you can add a sound effect to your movie. Ooh. <laughs> how you can dub music in right. while they're talking. And, th- and this was like a whole piece of work to try to do this, you know, back in 1980. And so uh, I was really interested in sort of the whole ethos of, you know, making movies yourself and making shorts and you get your friends to act in the movies and whatever. We've ended up making a lot of movies about characters who have a weird dream and then they get their friends to help them execute their weird dream. Right. So, you know, maybe, I mean, I never thought about it before until I started babbling here. I mean, this goes back to almost junior high school with me. That was going to be my question was, obviously, you guys have become very well known for distilling a certain kind of artist's life into a very particular, I don't know, screenwriting format. Mm -hmm. But what kind of movies did you think you were going to be making when you were, when you met at USC? I mean, I don't know if we had a, you know, we were coming off of the 1970s. I mean, I think we we began school in 1981 or 1982. And so you're coming off of that great period of American Coppola films, and Coppola Alt- and Lucas and, and Scorsese and Altman and, you know, Bogdanovich. And, like and Shaggy Dog. And, uh, um, Did, was uh, there anxiety at USC about following up that class of kids who had come n- out of there? No, because I don't think neither one of us well, gave a shit. Well, but no, but Lucas had changed the rules. Yeah. I mean, Star Wars was such a big deal. Yeah. And suddenly film school became famous and George is USC and right. it was it was George and Zemeckis and Bob Gale and John Milius and we all knew that list. Right. And every film crazy kid wanted to be at USC in that era. Right. But that being said, there were a bunch of kids there who were there because of Lucas and wanted to make movies like Lucas. And I don't think Scott and I were in that group. <laughs> They're there, also the film fascists. Yeah, exactly. There, there was a group of... <laughs> here's the thing. That what's, what was kind of cool about going to a place like that where so many people really were into the whole Star Wars thing, the 10 people who weren't, they were your friends. You know what I mean? I'm not knocking Star Wars or anything like that, but I'm saying the people who wore black and listened to punk rock or, or you know, whatever, those people all knew who the other people were. And so there was a, there was actually a counterculture within that area. And so what were the films that you guys cared about then that were kind of present at that moment if you weren't waiting in line for Star Wars for a fifth time? I mean, for me, it's like, it's like I had a really completely different childhood than Scott where I grew up like watching – you know, five movies a week since I was a little, little kid. And my my parents, I mean, my dad worked in a factory. My mom was a waitress and uh, they got divorced. And um, uh, my dad had me one night a week and didn't know what to do with a kid. So he would take me to drive and drink beer and fall asleep. And I would just watch, uh, you know, nonstop. But you would crazy. program the, the evening. Exactly. I totally would. I would be the guy like finding out and, and I'd have to explain why something was rated R so it let me go. You know, I'd be like, oh, this radar because of this, because of that. And they'd be all right. There's, you know, they're trying to keep me from nudity. I think they didn't really care about violence, but, uh, but, uh, I, I could just manipulate it any way I wanted to. Did you have an awareness when you were in school that you had been so deeply influenced by all this stuff? Or was it just like, well, this is just what is good? No, I think, uh, we totally had an awareness. I mean, we were, we were film nerds. You know, there's no other way around the fact. And we still are. So how do you set about becoming professional screenwriters i i'm i know problem child is your first big screenplay <laughs> that, was our, that was our second script yeah. um, uh, i mean we bumbled into it yes. well scott was the first person i knew at school who had a personal computer Ooh, he had a computer you could type on it and you could save things you, and could, you, could, you could copy and paste you could do revisions <laughs> I, I i was way ahead of the 
curve. I always forget. Is it early adapter, early adopter? Which adopter, I adopter. believe. Okay, I always mix those up. No final draft back in those days, though. Oh, no. No, no. but a, a few years nothing, later, yeah. there was a, uh, the very first screenwriting software was invented by guys we went to school with. No it kidding. was called Scripter. And uh, you would have to write your script in WordStar 4. But if you write a whole script, the, the, the software couldn't hold 100 pages because that's too big a file. So you're looking at me like this is science fiction, but you're <laughs> well, younger than us. We've come a long way. And so you'd have to break the script up into three WordStar documents, and then you would write it, and then you would run it through the scripter afterwards to fix all the margins. And it was cumbersome, but these guys were great. I mean, ultimately, Final Draft kind of wiped them out, which was too bad. But anyway, getting back to my bragging rights. <laughs> Might be the dullest podcast. <laughs> you can just, WordStar files. You can have to copy you can, you can call us out. <laughs> But I, 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 We're keeping all of it. I was I, I was so interested in this new technology that I, I drove down to San Diego to the K Pro Computer Factory and I bought a K Pro Two X for eighteen hundred ninety five dollars, which my parents loaned me. And I had a computer uh, in eighty three or eighty four, which was really early. And basically, we uh, we had an idea for a screenplay. You always, now you're making it sound like. Mm. That we wrote a script because I had a computer. Which well, no, but you, is that, silly. that's not true. We wanted to write a script. We, we wanted to be filmmakers. And in all fairness, writing a script was not how you became a filmmaker back then. I mean, I mean, look at all those those USC people that you mentioned, Milius and Zemeckis, and and uh, you know, they made short films. Mm-hmm. So everybody at USC was all about making short films. And and uh, yeah, yeah. The, we, and when you wrote when you took screenplay classes, you only wrote the first twenty pages. Uh, Forty. Forty. All right. You just you, you wrote you know because it was you're not expected to. Write an entire 120 pages. Because, for, I mean, for also, I mean, I mean, thinking about it with with the the pre computer age, if you're typing something on a typewriter and then you have to do revisions, and I mean, I mean, you're 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 either liquid papering over the sentence or you're retyping the whole page or you're uh, retyping a few li- the kids. Listen to what your grandparents had to do here. <laughs> or you're typing a few new lines and then you're taping it onto the page and then Disaster. going down a to Charlie Chan. It was very time consuming, I think is what he's kind of Printing. Saying. Yeah, I mean, just to do revisions was so hard. So maybe it never occurred to anybody well, that we basically, a student because, could write because, a whole script. That, because you had a computer, though, it really made us say, like, let's try to write a script and get all okay, the way to the Okay, but the motivation for the script was that, <laughs> Lord. Was that there, was, there was a newspaper column, a, uh, a self-help column, and it had a story about a kid in a high school who was vandalizing the gym fell through the skylight, hit the uh, basketball court floor. See, this is the ringer, so I'm working in sports here. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> and, he got, and he got paralyzed. Yep. And his parents sued the school district for liability, saying it was an unsafe environment. And the school district said, what the hell? He was, breaking he was on the roof of the gym. And so uh, it became this whole back and forth with the letters of the editor to the Ann Lander self-help column over whether or not this kid was in the right or in the wrong. And we started talking about this, and we were joking about it and saying, well, that's not a very funny story, but ha-ha, what if it was our hero, Morris Day, Morris, Morris Day, Day of the time, time right. who had just been in Purple Rain. And we, we thought he was the funniest man on earth. We thought he, he was going to be the, the biggest movie star of all time. What if it's Morris Day, and he's not, whatever, he's not on a school roof. He's, he's, he's robbing a house, and he falls through the house, and oh, my God, and the house is owned by Albert Brooks, who's our favorite <laughs> comic filmmaker and Albert Brooks is great when he does that bad temper where he just loses it and he just starts yelling at the thief and then oh and Albert has this neighbor it's Walter Matthau and Walter Matthau 
doesn't get along with Albert because he's annoying and Matthau is a shady lawyer. So he pulls the thief aside and says, well, you've got a good case here. You can sue the homeowner for negligence. And then I, I had an uncle, Uncle Marty, who had just had a midlife crisis. He had left the pharmaceutical business and become a lawyer in his 40s. So he was just out of law school. It was all fresh in his head. And I was at his house one day. I said, well, Uncle Marty, could this really happen? And he says, well, let's go, let's go look up the rules. And we started going through law books, and it turned out that this could really happen. And so then Larry and I said, well, this is kind of a funny idea. What if we wrote a script? And all our friends thought we were crazy because no one at USC back in the mid-'80s would write a whole script. But we thought, well, why not? No one's stopping us. Right. So we wound up writing it. And, we wrote, uh, we wrote 100, 120 whole pages. Yes, exactly. And um, and we didn't know what to do with it. So we actually— Oh, the title's Home Records. Home Records. And we, um, we, uh, uh, we got a More Stay album. And we flipped it over. Was and it, it said, Oak Tree? Yeah, I think it was the Oak Tree or, or uh, Color of Success. Color of Success. Um, uh, Ow, oh, Color exactly. of Success. He has a new autobiography out right now. So go buy Morris's book. Everyone support um, Morris Day. Uh, <laughs> and the back, it said, like, managed by Sand Dollar Management. And so we got the white pages and we found Sand Dollar we got Management. got the phone book. Phone book. For, and you know, uh, looked it up. God dang, we were old. Um, and then we <laughs> called up Sand Dollar <laughs> Management on our rotary phone. <laughs> And they, uh, they uh, and we said, uh, yeah, can we talk to the people who manage more stay? And and someone picked up and and we said, hey, we we are USC film students. We wrote a script for more stay. And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> you did? Because no so, one had ever written a script for more stay before. <laughs> who, who would do such and a thing? And so they, they brought us in, and that didn't quite happen. But but that was within, a Hollywood meeting. They within, they brought us in within two weeks of us graduating from uh, college. The script had sold. For what at the time was like one of the record prices, and all of a sudden we literally—I was working at a record store. You were like holding a boom mic for movies. I, I, I was production coordinator on a horror film, The Kindred, and uh, uh, we all of a sudden had an office at Fox and money, and uh, and strange enough, we've kind of been working ever since. That's absolutely yeah. incredible. So that yeah. that was 1986 when that yeah. script sold, and even just hearing you essentially do the pitch for the yeah. movie, it sounds like even then you kind of knew how to sell yourselves as screenwriters and how to sell a movie. Like, does, a was, bit, that, yeah. was that inherent? Like, how did you know to do well, that? Well, back then, it was, there was a big thing that we called the high concept picture. Mm-hmm. So you sort ooh, of had, ooh, high yeah, concept. you had to like, you know, know. High concept the, comedy. Yeah. I kind of miss those, honestly. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely do too. Um, I mean, there was that whole run of uh, touchstone high concept comedies uh, Down Out Beverly Hills and uh, Ruthless People, mm-hmm. which I really loved. But what's very huh. interesting about the first project is um, the sort of the beginnings of all our good projects are right there, where it's based on a true story. There's a legal aspect to it. There's, you know, there's a, <laughs> but it's, it's a comedy, you know. So, so even Problem Child was kind of based on an article we read in the in the in the L.A. Times. And even, a, even me doing a slapdash description thirty three years later. As soon as I start to describe it with Morris and Albert and Matthau, you can kind of you can kind of picture the movie. You can yeah. start to see. I was it. like, I'm in. I yeah. feel like I've seen that poster. You can <laughs> you can you can sort of see why yeah. it's going to be funny, why it works. So, I, why is Problem Child the first thing that gets produced? Well, Homewreckers uh, went into development. Hell, we were really really young. I was 22 when we sold the script, and we now when kids go to school. They take classes called How to Break into Hollywood, which is really bizarre to me. And they learn how to how to get an agent, how to go into a meeting, how to pitch an idea, which is the furthest thing from the minds of the professors at USC when we were there. Back then, they were teaching you what's a 3X structure, and then they're teaching you how to hold a boom mic, how, how, to, how, to, uh, how to measure light on a set so you can get an exposure. 
uh, how to mix the tracks. It was it was it was a technical school, you know, with a with a little bit of a story structure thrown in, and um, there was n- literally not one moment given to what do you do when you graduate. Yeah, and so we had no clue, and so we were young and enthusiastic. Fox uh, at the time was being run by uh, a guy who's a giant producer now, Scott Rudin, and he had this idea. He was a president studio for just about a year, and he wanted to bring back the old writers tables of the 1930s and he because studio offices are always at a premium and usually i mean larry and i have a pretty good track record we usually don't get them it's hard to get a studio office and and scott's attitude was let's give all the writers an office and you get all these creative young people with big ideas bumping into each other they're in the commissary they're walking down the parkway and and you and, and, you, and you get creative excitement from that and which is like what the old writers' tables were back in the Metro days in 1940. And so overnight, we suddenly had an office at Fox. And, you know, we didn't know what the hell to do with an office at Fox. And so we, we did actually. We knew, we knew we'd make, make Bloody Marys we, at we 5 stocked o'clock it, in the well, afternoon. I was leading to that. So we stocked <laughs> it with a full Bloody Mary bar with Worcester and Tabasco. Yeah. Uh, what a celery salt. Which is like talking to journalists line. too, who were Which working is, at this yeah. time. Where I'm like, oh my god, this sounds so much more fun. Well, no, right. no, we, 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 we didn't, didn't do cocaine. We didn't okay. do cocaine. We're, we're, we're five years past the cocaine. Yeah, Got I've, it. I've never we, done cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> but we did have the Bloody Mary bar. Yeah. And and we, in all fairness, that's what Scott Rudin wanted. He wanted the idea that yes. like, you know we'd have we'd have Bloody Marys at five o'clock, so people would come over and like hang out. Creative confab, salon type atmosphere. But anyway, we we I think that's your original question. We wound up not really knowing how to balance things, and so the whatever the selling scripts in Hollywood is sort of the research and development stage and the first one didn't get made but it, we got lucky we got lucky that the, the second one did but, but I, I think it's interesting that yeah. we didn't we didn't know what to do once it was sold mm-hmm. and that you get you get notes from the producers saying it should be more of a family comedy like okay and then you write down family comedy and then you meet with the, the studio vice president the studio vice president says it should be more like a smart legal comedy like Billy Wilder's The Fortune Cookie we're like ah Billy Wilder The Fortune Cookie got it and then you go back to your office and you realize you have contradictory notes and you don't know what to do. And when you're young and you've never done this before, you don't know. You have to make everyone think they're happy. Yes. And we didn't know that yet. And so we would like oh, try to do note A. But note, note A makes note B unhappy. So then you do note B and now note C is unhappy. And we were, after a year of this, we made everyone unhappy. Right. And we had a very long script because we just kept on writing. Yeah, so we just kept adding pages. 180 pages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, high exactly. concept comedy. Exactly. So after yeah. after a year and a half, we sort of drove it into the ditch, and then so then we got fired, and we, then we were unemployed again. I love talking to duos and teams. I'm always so interested in how you guys do what you do practically. So it's one person banging away at the computer, and the other person is talking. Are you back to back in an office somewhere? We're in an simultaneously office simultaneously working. Back. That's right. That's really amusing. Well, back, yeah. Back, it's like, like, does someone write back to back? Yeah, like a Hepburn and Tracy or something in a movie. Oh, they, oh, they were back to back, yeah. weren't they? You're right. So, like, we're, what, we're, what, we're, what does it look like? What are you? How are you collaborating? Uh, it's like Hall and Oates. That's our goal to be the writing Hall and Oates. <laughs> okay, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm Oates. I'm fine with that. Larry, no problem being. Larry they're both the, very talented. Larry yeah. gets the couch, and I get the stiff back chair with the computer. Okay, yeah, that's and, the short answer. And. I'd like I compare to, it to uh, you know this uh, once again. We'll no, be, no, even make you're going to compare me to a secretary. No, you, he wants sanctions. He's not a secretary. He's because he's never seen the show. If you ever watch the old Dick Van Dyke show, mm-hmm. it's it's that. It's, Who it's, takes it's, notes? Uh, they all. I mean, it's it's. She's not a secretary. She's a she's one of the writers. She's uh she's what what's the name of the female um person from your show shows? 
Uh, Valerie Harper. Valerie, never mind. But anyway, but uh, but yeah. So it's it's comedy. That was Imogene comedy, Coca. Comedy. Uh, I meant the writer lady. Uh, Kaylin. What's her name? Uh, um, but uh, uh, comedy writing that tends to be people in a room because you know instantly it's funny. Throwing ideas. Correct. Valerie Curtin. <laughs> You're pleasing no one right now. <laughs> Selma Diamond. Oh, maybe. Someone out there is laughing. Someone's out there. One lonely guy is laughing right now. <laughs> Me. Yes. So, so but we have an office. We work every day. It's not like you take 30 pages and I take 30 pages. Alan Pugh. It's, uh, we just keep, you know, we, we just come in and bang it out. Use um, Ed Wood as a way to expl- explain to me how you arrived at this sort of story that you're telling. Uh, Where does that movie come from? It and came, it, 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 Ed Wood it. was very personal. Yeah. Ed Wood came out of, we wrote, uh, Problem Child was a pitch. We sold it. It was a bidding war. Blah, blah, blah. We wrote it. And then we got taken into a meeting by a producer saying, I, I want to meet a bar because I have good news and bad news. We go, ooh, just tell us. He says, no, nah, you better be sitting down with a drink in your hand. We're like, okay. What do you want to hear first? The good news or the bad news? The good news. Universal greenlit your first draft. Oh my God. Oh my God. What's the bad news? You're fired. <laughs> so we were fired <laughs> because of a lot of internal studio politics. Some people wanted to make the movie, some didn't. And Prom Child got rewritten by, a, by like eight or 10 other people. And then we'd get, re- it'd be a mess. And then we'd get rehired and then they'd fire us again. And then other people would write them and we'd get fired again. And it was just this tortured thing. And then we did Problem Child 2 for reasons that are hard to explain. Uh, and uh, I, the agent got me drunk at a bowling party. There. And after Problem Child 1 and Problem Child 2, which were big hits, we couldn't get well work. We couldn't get work. And um, I'd always been interested in Ed Wood. I had done a, a class at USC trying to do a documentary about Ed Wood. And Ed Wood, up to this point, was a subject of mockery. He was in the uh, the Golden Turkey Awards. He was voted the worst director who ever lived. Plan Nine's the worst film ever made, and and there were these traveling shows uh, uh, with the 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 Medved brothers, where they would show his three Lugosi movies, and then it'd come out and they'd make fun of him in between the movies and say, "Isn't he terrible?" And we hadn't set out to make Problem Child terrible. It just kind of turned out terrible and it it was very popular and it's still beloved and all your listeners are like i i grew up watching it on on turner every it has a nostalgia every factor fourth of July, yeah. every everyone, everyone loves it but it was it wasn't it wasn't anything good and um well it wasn't what the movie we wanted to make you, you know, wanted and, something and, darker it was like, but also but the idea that you you, you had something earlier like what kind of films did you want to make i mean we saw ourselves as making kind of interesting good movies and that wasn't what that was uh and so um no but i mean our uh, when we had set out to write problem child you always say like what are you picturing in your head for tone and the, we had talked about the war of the roses oh interesting. you know which was a grown-up film mm-hmm. it was a dark com- comedy which our buddy you know danny directed and uh and so it had turned out dark. So we started talking about Edward saying, why do people make fun of him? That just doesn't seem very nice because he's this kid from Poughkeepsie and he was movie crazy and he moved out to LA with big dreams and he directed six features. And maybe they're not so great. But what if we celebrated that instead of kicking him where it hurts? What if we said, well, hooray for Ed because he, 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 he had a vision and he came out here and he made it happen. And so what if you told his story sympathetically? So we started kicking that around. And also while going to college, I, I had been a PA at a bunch of low, low, low budget horror films. You can look at my credits on IMDb as PA, a boom operator, an apprentice editor. And I had a great time on these movies. 
because, you know, these were movies, you know, shot for a few hundred thousand dollars, uh, you know, where we we couldn't afford a, to rent uh, the boom mic and the boom. So the boom was a hockey stick where we would tape the mic onto the end of it. And I would, you know, stand on a, on a box because I'm short as the boom operator and everyone's chipping in. And I, I, re- I remember the salary. The salary was $105 a week for seven 16-hour days. So uh, I, 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 was, I was working, you know, for, you know, um, I think that's less than a less dollar. Less than minimum wage. Less, yes. I think it's less, <laughs> less than a dollar an hour. And I was having such a good time. And this was back in 1982. And I made friends on, on those movies that I still have to this day, which is almost 40 years, which is crazy. And... So well, that, people that are there because 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 they love movies. You know, they they're so excited about getting the experience of being on a, a on movie a set. set. Oh my god, they're shooting in thirty five, and so it's all about the joy of filmmaking, about being part of that gang. And it, and it, for a, a lot of people, it's their first movie, and and none of the actors have other credits because they no one else has cast them, and the actors aren't in SAG. You know, they've just been doing little tiny shows around town. And, and now thing, this yeah. producer has offered to hire them. And the actors, actors got more than us. The actors might have gotten like $25 a day. And when you heard stories about Ed Wood, it was very similar to that, where he gave a lot of these people um, uh, a reason to exist in a weird way. Like gave them, you know, and, and so they were, um, they were all of a sudden, they were part of this movie-making gang. And we thought like, what if, you know, let's, let's celebrate this. Let's, let's make it sympathetic. Let's, let's concentrate on his passion. And it seemed like he saw certain performers in a different light than yeah. they were previously seen by what how well, the, they were their the, day the, jobs the were key, just like you guys. Yeah, the key thing too is 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 his way he looked at Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. And so uh you know we had this thing where we were gonna you know make it about our filmmaking background, but also the idea that it was a love story between Bella and Ed. And that was that that was the key emotional thing the way that they took care about meeting your hero and being able to take care of your hero and give them a second act. So that's obviously a brilliant film, and Tim Burton did an amazing yeah. job. You have all these great performances right. in the movie. After it comes out and is, you know, very well received, right. is is there something um, spoken between you that says like we've kind of got a loose template for yes. something we no, want to do? Much so, but, but very this much happened, so. To to give uh, credit to Hollywood, um, and, and I always like to say this to writing students, tell them the story. Uh, it happened before the movie got made. It happened when we wrote the script, which was that we couldn't give ourselves away. Before it would, because even though Problem Child was a hit, no one really wanted to be in business with the people. You know, no, no actors were saying like, "Oh God, I want those Problem Child guys to come in and write, uh, you know, scene where I get a bag of shit dumped mm-hmm, on my head." Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like there's a lot of people who do kind of quote unquote biopics, and that's not necessarily well, the most but, reputable well, well, thing. No, no, no. no I mean, here's the thing: well, that, we that's where we, we're we, into, we, we we changed the rules in that I think before the two of us came along. I, I can't I can't even think of another biopic that wasn't about someone of great achievement. Biopics were about people who changed the world or were superb artists or were elected to something or they cured cancer or they fixed poverty. They, they, they've done something noble. noble and important. And usually the movies are like three hours long and mm-hmm. they kind of are just, they're really dreary. And, right. and, 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 and the we life have, of Emile Zola. Exactly. Yeah. Zola yeah. or Gandhi. Yeah. You know, I mean, like that fucking kind of Zola, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but here's the thing, we like, have this idea, like, why can't you, why can't you just celebrate somebody who's in the margins who had an interesting life? And, and it's sort of this thing that we end up becoming obsessed with, which is, you know, scholars would call it primitive art or it's just looking into the margins of Americana 
and and for us it's a, the people on the front page aren't the interesting ones it's the it's the people in the little two paragraph story buried in the back that 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 we find intriguing and so we wrote this ed wood script and then people wanted to meet us and the movie hadn't been made yet i mean word had gotten around that tim burton is talking about doing this as his next film and so we started getting a lot of meetings with people just saying well, what do you got next what do you got next and and we had this one other idea which was larry flint because when larry flint was going through his manic phase and running for president in 84 we were roommates and we had started collecting all of the newspaper stories when all the stuff in the movie where he's wearing the diaper in the courtroom and he's throwing the orange at the judge. These stories were front page in the LA Times every day. LA Times was having a field day with it because it was so entertaining. And so we just thought Larry was this incredibly interesting story, another story of Americana. And it, we found it incredible that no one had written a book about him. No one had written a major magazine article about him. And we're talking about a guy who's born, who was born so poor that he had a dirt floor. That's poor. And then he ended up making $100 million. He ran for president. He was shot going into a courthouse, fighting for his beliefs. I mean, it's a fascinating life. Whether you love him or hate him, it's really interesting. And no one had ever really taken a look at him before. And so we started saying, well, we should do this. And, and then we, we had a, a really formative meeting with Jim Brooks during this period. And, and we said to Jim, well, he said, like, I really like what you guys have done. And what are you, what are you thinking about? And we said, well, we have this other thing that we, we, we could do, but we don't want to get typecast. And we're like young, young idiots saying this to Jim Brooks. And Jim looks at us, he says, don't be fools. He says, most writers spend their entire lives trying to carve out anything that they're known for. If you guys have this thing that you do that no one else in town does, you should run with this. God forbid you actually have a reputation. More power to you. <laughs> right. So little that, little bit of a sliding doors question okay. for you. That both both that film, Edward and Larry Flint, are directed by masters of their craft and they have incredible cast giving incredible performances. Yeah. If any of those moving pieces doesn't fall into place, yep. do you get to be in that position, do you think? Uh well, here's the weird that's, thing that's about a good question. that's a great question, but what's been really interesting about our career so far is uh, we've worked with really, really good directors, but very different kind of directors. Mm, that's In fact, the, the two people you just mentioned, there aren't more different directors ever than Tim Burton and Milos Forman. Yeah, I mean, Tim Tim is heightened, and Milos is all about naturalism. Mm. But what's strange is when they work with our screenplays, it's kind of this thing where it's a Scott and Larry movie. We've been we've been able to become almost. It sounds silly to say you're an auteur of the thing that you authored, but we have become the auteurs of our own thing. So I mean, t- Tim did an amazing job directing Ed Wood, and it is one thousand percent a Tim Burton movie from frame one to frame end. But it's also a Scott and Larry movie. Yeah, I think. And the same thing with Ryan Murphy and on on Larry on uh, on OJ or or Craig Brewer on on Dolomite. It's like you have all these different kind of directors. But for some reason, what we're doing kind of is threads through it, and 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 they all feel they all feel of a piece. That's interesting. I mean, the, that's why I wanted to talk to you guys. Yeah. And I think right around Larry Flynn is when I had a consciousness about that. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is these two guys make this kind of a movie, right. and there's something in the way that they're portraying a life that is unique. And I've not seen anything right. like this before. It kind of switches your switches your brain on a little right. bit. Did well, you know that you were going to be able yes, to have that? I think so because. Um, uh, we really enjoyed writing these things, and it allowed us at a time when Hollywood was becoming very, very corporate and very cookie cutter, and the superhero things were starting to take over. Where we could write 
kind of subversive, strange movies, movies about a transvestite film director, movies about a guy who's making a porn magazine, movies about a, a guy who was making comedy that's not funny, you know, but we were getting him through the studio system and we were making these big, big projects that were really odd, independent kind of films. And so we felt ourselves in a very lucky, uh, blessed position. And we looked at the biopic genre, you know, like I said before, all these movies were long and boring and nobody had come along and kicked its ass. You know, people came along and kicked the Western's ass. You know, they they went from stagecoach to the Wild Bunch to the Good, Bad, and the Ugly. You know, people come along to the gang- longer and longer, Larry. <laughs> exactly, but, but you know, but but I'm saying they they rethought them. They're revisionists, mm-hmm. and we came in and said, "What if you do the fringe history of America and do biopics about the people that we're fascinated about, not necessarily the people who are like you know making the world a better and that, place?" I mean, that all, almost goes back to what I was saying when you first said, "How do we meet?" In, the, in that we were both interested in these fringy exploitation guys who were just running in the margins and whatever. We were both fans of this you know, book, Cult Movies by Danny Peary. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the, the, the John, John Waters and, and John Joss and just all these, all these obscure <laughs> indie people who, again, they're in the margins. And that's what we found so intriguing. And also we had a, a love for them. I think one of the things that goes through all our movies is we have an affection for our characters. And these a lot of times people would have, would play these characters as dark or, you know, tragic or about their drug addiction or about, you know, Edward was an alcoholic, you know, and you, Edward made, you know, had his last five or six years where it was just horrible and, and he was making pornography and things like this. But we actually figured out a way to end the movie in a way that, 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 that was about what Edward should be celebrated about, you know? And so we, we would, we brought our affection for these people into the movies. And so people always, we, we, over our career, we kept on getting people who would, who would get a copy of our screenplay and say, oh, why would someone make a movie about that guy? And then they read it like, oh my God, it's so sweet. <laughs> like, yeah, like see, even like Dolomite is a classic example. It's the sweetest movie you've ever seen where they say the word motherfucker 385 times. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. I mean, do you literalize that kind of ebullience that the characters have in almost all of these kinds of films that you guys write? It's it's not intentional. No. But we end, we end up getting sucked in because we do lots of research. We like research. And the research is fun. And it's like you're back in high school and the... And the teacher assigned you to, you know, do some report on the Western pioneers. And you're like, oh, well, and then you go to the library and then you start reading and then you just, you find a couple chapters that suddenly pique your interest. And when you start spending two or three or six months researching the subject, you start to fall in love with all the eccentricities and the weird details and what Larry and I call the fun facts yeah. and all the fun facts we type up. All the, the the fun facts started back in Edwood. Fun fact, Tor Johnson used to break toilet seats because he'd sit on them and they'd crack. <laughs> right. Fun fact. And stuff like, you know, you know, and stuff like that would just get typed up. And and so all these weird details. Um, you know, Rudy Ray Moore, fun fact. He once wore a turban and called himself Prince Dumar. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. But we- we're gonna write it down. And it's just going to be taped to the desk. And at some point, we're going to shove it in. He once was a mind reader. Does he know how to read minds? I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, showbiz is kind of rocky. And when you're trying to break in, you do whatever you can. And so we would just type up all these things. And you know, once you know Rudy was a shake dancer and he was Prince Dumar and he was a fortune teller and he was trying to be little Richard and you start having affection for him because, God, this guy is really, he'll just try any movie, any hustle he can come up with. 
to break in. And so the more time you spend with the guy, then you just start liking it more and more. And also I think what we really like about almost all these characters is they're they're walking in kind of the wrong direction. They have this big dream, but it kind of goes against almost everything that society wants your dream to be. Uh, I mean, technically, yes, Rudy <laughs> wants to be a big, famous movie star, but he wants to do it in such an oddball way, you know. Uh, and There's so, like a ne'er-do-well quality to yeah, a lot of the yeah. figures. Yeah. And, and Rudy, I mean, this is all in the movie, you know, but when Rudy finally hit, he was pushing 50. Mm-hmm. And until he hit with Dolomite, he was really doing this archaic kind of entertainment. He was just telling old old vaudeville kind of jokes and and tired nightclub jokes and singing like Little Richard from 1957. That no one really wanted anymore. Did you guys have an awareness of the records when you were kids? When did he first cross paths with him? I I knew of the party records uh, more through um, uh, 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 I would say a rival of of Rudy, but a, a peer of Rudy named Wild Man Steve. Uh, Wild Man Steve. There's a couple of Wild Man Steve records in the in our um uh in our movie, but Wild Man Steve was another uh, African American comic. And when Larry, this time Larry and I were, were college dorm freshman year roommates, he had a Wild Man Steve eight track yes. tape. Yeah, actually, and I said, "What the hell is that?" One of the worst tricks he ever played on me is that. Um, oh, this is so funny. Um, um this has never been told anywhere. Oh, wow. uh, this is a, a ringer exclusive. <laughs> I had a date with someone I really, you know, thought I was going to have some things going on. We were roommates. And so um, uh, I was taking them out. And you did the whole, like, okay, you got to be out of the room exactly. at 9 o'clock and you can't come back. I think about 8-tracks. 8-tracks were like, you know, you put them in and they play over and over and over again. So I put on some, like, romantic music there. So it was be play- Even when I walked in, there were romantic. I forgot this. <laughs> romantic music was playing. And then, uh, and so <laughs> when I brought the girl back, I opened the door. And Scott had switched the tape with a tape of Wild Man Steve. So I walk in like, you motherfucker, you goddamn <laughs> son of a bitch. And I was like, I had to race to break the mood. And I, I pulled the Wild Man Steve's uh, It's tape. not very nice. Oh, it was, but it was genius. Oh, was like, like, I hated him, but it was also like I had the bow saying, all right, he got me. Um, so I, I knew a little bit of that because, uh, 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 but and I knew black exploitation. Mm-hmm. But Rudy's movies were so kind of uh, fringy that they never actually got to my hometown in Indiana. So it wasn't until uh, we were in, in college together. Uh, a friend of ours, uh, actually a screenwriter named Daniel Waters, who wrote Heather's and Batman Returns and things. He was running a video store at the time. And he brought this VHS home called The Best of Sex and Violence. And it was uh, it was hosted by John Carradine. And it was just a collection of, of uh, exploitation real low trailers. Budget. Really just this horrible, like, you know, Filipino, uh, uh, you know, women in prison pictures and things like this. Right. But in the middle of this. Like that's entertainment, yes. but, for the, yeah, but, but for sex and exactly. violence. Exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. But in the middle of it was the three Rudy Raymore trailers, uh, Dolomite, The Human Tornado, and Disco Godfather. And the, the Rudy trailers are the greatest trailers of all time. Yeah. I mean, the, the guys at Dimension Films were geniuses. And, and to all you listeners, uh, go look up the Human Tornado trailer. Make sure you get you get the... Uh, the the uh, red band version w- without the without the black lines and and without the beeps and it's so freaking crazy it's just being smacked upside the head with a board for three minutes so funny and so uh, we became obsessed with it and since Dan ran the video story we didn't have to return the tape so literally <laughs> just sat on our we would our... just watch this tape over and over yeah, and over these watched, Rudy trailers you came over we would drag you over and wa- made you watch it and then yeah. it was uh, actually my birthday uh, following year and this was before the internet actually I I I just remembered a detail but, about okay, this go, which you, is give it. Uh, uh, back in early video days, and everyone forgets this, I just remembered this the other night, studios were really nervous about piracy. 
And they at first they were really against home video, and then they sort of begrudgingly there was some lawsuit and they had to do it. And so what they did was they priced. Oh yeah. They priced videotapes for rent, not for sale. Correct. What that means is. This sounds insane. I remember if you this. wanted to, if you wanted to buy uh, a, a copy a VHS of a Michael Keaton comedy uh, back in the eighties, it would cost you a hundred dollars. Yes, because they wanted Blockbuster to buy it and rent it over and over and over. They didn't want people to own it in their homes. But I wanted to get so that's that's why I had yeah. to drive to the factory. So I wanted to get Larry the Rudy movies for his birthday, but you couldn't walk into a video store because they didn't have that stuff to sell. They only had it to rent. So I went to the again to the white pages because we're old. And uh, Xenon Video had a warehouse in Santa Monica, and I drove out to their shipping, their shipping store, and I just showed up with money, saying I'm here to buy some Rudy tapes. And they looked at me like I was crazy because there's no cashier and there's there, there's no sales <laughs> counter. But that was the only way I could figure out how to buy a copy of a, of the Human Tornado back in the '80s. But you got him. He got him. Yeah, that was great. Were you as obsessed with the movies as you were the trailers? Uh, once I we think started, was the idea of Rudy. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say we were. Uh, the Human Tornado movie does not disappoint. The Human Tornado movie is. is There's a lot of Human great. Tornado in Dolomite. Is my name. Yes, correct. And when we originally uh, had thought of uh, Rudy Ray Moore as a movie, we we thought we were going to cover his entire cinematic output. Okay. And so, but once we started really doing specific research, all the good stories were kind of about Dolomite. But we figured you can't do a Rudy Ray Moore movie without him saying, you know, bitch, are you for real? Or, <laughs> or, or, him, or him rolling down the hill naked. Yeah, yes. you know what I mean? Okay. That'd, be, that'd be very disappointing. So um, when did it first occur to you guys to do this story as a script? About 16 years ago. It was, Eddie, it was Eddie's, Eddie's idea. idea. Yeah, we got a phone call from Eddie Murphy's office saying, Eddie wants to meet you. And we're like, holy shit, this is so cool. So we, we drove out to meet Eddie. And we walked in, and Eddie started doing um, uh, lines from Ed Wood. He was like doing years ago. This is like early two professors. Uh, it's after time? that. It's after yeah, that. This is okay. somewhere like, around. Eddie says it's around Pluto Nash. Pluto that sounds Nash. right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, or, no, Shrek Two. It's somewhere <laughs> okay. around okay. there. Okay. So um, uh, it's, dur- it's during the fam- the Eddie family film era. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Pre Daddy so, Daycare. Yeah. It's right around that. Right. Right. It's, um. And so. Uh, he was just doing lines from Ed Wood, and he was doing, you know, he's doing Tor Johnson, do my toes, and, he, and we're like, we're kind of freaking out because it's Eddie Murphy doing our lines from our movie. Wild. And then he said to us, do and you know, Eddie can remember every line in every movie he's ever yeah, seen. He's amazing. I mean, he's just remarkable. Huh. And then he said to us, "Do you guys know who Rudy Ray Moore is?" We're like, "Oh my God, holy shit! This is yeah, yes, we do know who Rudy Ray Moore is. We love Rudy Ray Moore, and we instantly got it." That oh, we you know it's clearly Eddie loved Ed Wood and thought it was basically asking us if we'd want to do a Rudy Ray Moore movie and it's, it was the best idea we ever heard the idea of Eddie doing Rudy would be just a complete home run and so we said yes and a couple of days later uh, he got us in a room with the real Rudy and we started hanging out with Rudy Ray Moore and Rudy told us his life story and how he saw it as a movie and how and and, Ru- and Rudy was really impressed like oh my God how. Holly- Hollywood has finally come around. Yeah. I'm really finally gonna, he wasn't respected. Finally going to get the respect. A big, fat Hollywood movie about me. Yeah. Although <laughs> I think he actually really wanted to play himself in the movie. And Eddie always says that when, when he, they would take Eddie aside and say, uh, well, we should forget the movie. We should really just go out on tour. You and me. We do a tour together. <laughs> was he in his 80s at this he point? He was very uh, old. He was living in Las Vegas, uh, mid seventies. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, but he was still performing. Mm-hmm. Like I saw him. I mean, at, he never. He was. He was. A, he was like one of those workhorse comics who was just. Performing until the day they drop. Yeah, right. Whatever. I saw Rickles literally the day he dropped. I mean, Rickles, Rickles would come out on stage. No, he didn't die the day you saw him. <laughs> he, 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 he couldn't walk. 
He had to see being in a chair. It wasn't stand-up comedy. It was. But he, they lived to work. Yeah, they lived to work. And I saw Rudy around the same time period at uh, Club Lingerie, which was at uh, Sunset and like Vine, right around that area. And I, I, I think sort of like trying to put it all together now. I, I think Eddie had seen Rudy recently and had that had given him the idea. Yeah. And and so we we had this day with Rudy, and he told us war stories, and it was all great, great, great. And then we tried to sell it, and nobody wanted it. And it was just. You know, it's just, oh, God, it's Scott and Larry again with one of their obscure guys. I mean, Eddie was firmly in family film comedy land then. Uh, and I'm sure they looked up the Human Tornado trailer and said, what the hell is this? So, <laughs> sure. You know, so they, they, they weren't kind of getting what we wanted to do. But that couldn't have been the first time that you encountered that. I mean, do you, do you guys find that it's harder and harder to make people understand? I mean, I, I, but to also be be fair to the buyers, uh, Man on the Moon lost money. Mm-hmm. And this was a couple years after Man on the Moon, which is also about a comedian. Right. Yeah. So they might have like, oh, let's run the foreign comps on a Scott and Larry comedian picture. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Don't take it to South America, folks. Yeah, so, Were you pitching it or had you written it? Uh, no, we had not written no, it. No, we, we didn't, didn't write it. We didn't write a word. It. So uh, we, it, it didn't get set up. And then a few years after that, uh, you know, Rudy ended up dying. And we felt really bad because we felt like we had we had got him excited and we promised him we'd make a movie and we didn't do it. And, uh, you know, I even did like a, a thing at the American Cinematheque where I had you know, some of the people who worked with Rudy, like the real Jerry Jones and Ben Taylor and Nick Von Sternberg come down and, you know, talk about Rudy's life. Uh, and, you know, every once in a while we'd hear like, oh, someone wants to remake Dolomite or, you know, someone's going to make a movie about Rudy. And we'd always encourage them. We'd say like, you know, let's, you know, but hopefully someone's going to do it. But we felt it passed us by. Like it, someone else is going to do it. And then it, no one ever did. And then we made the People versus O.J. Simpson and it was a huge, gigantic hit. It's an incredible series. Thank you. Thanks. And uh, but it, it allowed us to have that like one month where you can go into someone's office and all of a sudden like, oh yes, wow, that sounds great. Was that your back pocket thing? That this was that the was thing that, that you wanted yeah. to do. So we managed to get word back to Eddie because now like we remain friends with Eddie or something like that. We got word back. Yeah, to Eddie we hadn't through. talked to Eddie yeah. in sixteen years. Yeah. So we got word back to Eddie through John Fox and John Davis, the producers of the movie, and said, um, you know, would Eddie is Eddie still interested in this? Because we didn't know Eddie hadn't made a movie in like six years. He hadn't he hadn't made a you know he hadn't said the word fuck in a movie for twenty years. Yep. So we had no idea. We figured he was retired. Uh, and we got a resounding yes. Come over tomorrow night. We went out to do this ring right away, and we went into Netflix. And uh, because we had this thing like 16 years ago, where executives didn't quite get who we were talking about, Scott and I had a whole presentation about who the real Rudy Moore was and why he was important and why he's you know is influential. And we started into that, and it was with Ted Sarandos, who runs Netflix, like the, probably the most important person in Hollywood at this moment. He's like. Oh guys, I, I know all about Rudy. You already I mean, knew. Yeah. I, I I I used to run video stores in the eighties. Uh, like like that's how video stores stayed in business. We'd rent those tapes a thousand times. Yeah, Rudy oh, kept the lights on. on. And so we we were all like our pitch instantly like went into the shredder. And Eddie just got up and started doing Rudy. And before you knew it, like the thing was sold. So was it better that it took this long for Eddie in particular? Oh, it's interesting. Now he's really he's grown into the part. That's why I mean, I he's, he's grown to the part. I think Eddie was really hungry for it. Yeah. I mean we we were really excited that we were going to bring Eddie Murphy back. I mean... That's definitely what this is now. I mean, we we had a couple meetings with Eddie at his house and uh, very very much like the way Rudy is presented in the movie where Rudy's very quiet and thoughtful and a bit uh, introverted until the spotlight hits him and then he puts on the hat and then he pulls out the can and he turns into that other guy. And Eddie is a lot like that. And we have these meetings with Eddie where he's just kind of quiet and kind of looking down and we're sort of thinking like, God, does he really, does he really want to do this? Is he really into this? 
And then we'd sort of say, well, we're thinking that maybe we could do this with the signifying monkey and blah, blah, blah. He, and there'd be like a moment. And then he'd look up and then the light comes into his eyes. And then he turns into Rudy in front of us. And then his body posture changes. And then suddenly it's magic. And you go, oh my fucking God. Yeah. This is going to be amazing. So for the first time in our lives, we wrote a script for one person. We've never done this ever, 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 which was we're only writing the script for Eddie. All we care about is that Eddie loves the script. And we want it to just be jam-packed with all the stuff that we know Eddie's great at, which is stand-up, comedy, uh, music, music, some quiet tenderness. It's like all these things. And then we threw in a thousand obscure, Easter eggy kind of jokes that probably only Eddie got that were thrown into the script because we wanted to make him happy. Because we knew if Eddie loves it, he'll call up Netflix and we get to make a movie. And if Eddie doesn't like it, then what's the point? Then no one cares about this project. It only exists because of Eddie. <laughs> yeah, there, there are basically three people in the world who really wanted to make a Rudy Ray Moore movie. It's me, Scott, and Eddie. So like we, we had to make sure he was happy. So strangely, we were writing the movie as a tribute to Rudy Ray Moore, but we're also writing as a tribute to Eddie Murphy. Because we, we wanted to see Eddie back on that screen. Yeah. It has that energy. I think that that's the takeaway that almost everybody I know who's seen it is saying that it's like, it's just so good to be around Eddie Murphy again and Eddie Murphy going for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to ask you about the Netflix aspect of it. Okay. Yeah. You guys are such film history fans, buffs. Yes. So sophisticated and And, also no. And and Dolomite is my name is about going to movies. Absolutely. And there's a a tremendous four-walling joke in the script. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Someone got our four-walling joke. Finally, someone gets it. We talk about Billy Jack and uh, and Grizzly Adams. Yes, I love two 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 Billy Jack references in one year is pretty great with the Quinn's movie. But, uh, do you, are you uh, do you have any complex feelings about having have, your movie I on the service? Zero complex feelings because uh, uh, these kind of movies aren't getting made. So the people who are making these kind of movies, God bless them and may they last forever. Because uh, you know the bottom line is that Dolomite is my name is playing in theaters right now. Netflix is totally open to the theatrical experience. It's actually the theater chains that won't show Netflix films. So I don't, I don't. Uh, somehow Netflix is being presented as the villain when they're not. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I'm just saying they're making The Irishman. They're making Marriage Story. They're making our movie. These are these are the movies that we uh, all wanted to make when we were watching movies in the 1970s. Uh, um, and Three so, of the best things I've seen this year. Yeah, yeah. and so it's one of those things where let's thank thank God, Roma. You know, and people were complaining about Roma not being in I theaters. Hear, I hear the two popes is good. Yeah, exactly. It was good. You know, um, that, you know, who else would give Alfonso uh, that budget to make a movie, a black and white movie about his hometown and put it in theaters? That movie stayed in theaters forever. Uh, so, you know, I think they're, they're you know, I'm, I don't want to kiss my boss's ass too much, but it's like, I really, I think we have nothing but respect. <laughs> <laughs> nothing that, but respect That was for Scott for the record. All right, fine. I'll yeah. kiss their ass too. Uh, what, who is the person that you guys really want to do the Scott and Larry treatment for that you haven't had a chance to? We can't say that. Oh, come on. No, because it's one of those well, things that where... that person doesn't exist. Well, there are... There are well, people... Larry, I could bring up the old Marx Brothers script and uh, give you a headache. No, there are all, I mean, we've written several things that didn't get made. We have a Patty Hearst script that's amazing. Oh, we love our Patty um, Hearst script. You know, there's a Ripley's Believe It or Not movie about the well, real that's Robert a very Ripley. famous. That's a well-known thing, the Ripley's yeah. Believe It or there's Not. A script about... Will that ever happen? Uh, like these things all have like a lot of money against them and I mean there's a script about John McAfee and his adventures in Belize that might happen which, which happen. it keeps threatening to get made it's, it's yeah. a, it, yeah. that's a thing that should happen that's a movie that deserves that's, to that, exist that's a good one we wrote a script about the uh, man who stole Einstein's brain 
I don't know Which anything is a about fascinating that. Story. When the pathologist who was doing the autopsy on Einstein realized that he was going to be cremated, and he said, "Oh, no fucking way!" There no, you know, this is one of the Doctor Tom but, Harvey. Yes, <laughs> no one's going to burn Einstein's brain. So because he, who knows what kind of secrets are in there for scientists? Sure, to discover. Yeah, that's how he, it works. He stole Einstein's brain. And for the next 40 years, this guy, it wasn't really on the lamb, but I want to make he it sound actually, like he was, on he was the kind lamb. of on the lamb. With, 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 with the brain. brain in a jar. No one knows the story. It's I, absolutely out of its mind. And it's a great, it's a great script. That we wrote that. But there are people that we want to do, but we find that if you, if you announce what you're going to do, first of all, someone else is going to do it. Is there and, someone we want and, to do? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, really? Um, oh, yeah, that guy. That guy. Oh, we, we just, we just, uh, this year finished a script about Guts and Borglum and the yeah. carving of Mount Rushmore. And that's an oh. amazing Which we, we love that script. So it's a, it's a bit of a spectacle. I mean, our, our movies tend to be about two guys in an office yelling at each other. I wonder how that happened. And, exactly, yeah, exactly, which sum, sums up our, our entire career. And, and Mount Rushmore, well, Mount Rushmore is Mount Rushmore. Right. So it's kind of <laughs> big. So how many scripts would you say you guys have written together? I don't know. Probably fewer than you think. Yeah, we have an insane track record in terms of uh, getting, getting things, things made. Yeah, so fewer than thirty. Sure, because we've, we've been writing for like thirty. We don't. We don't. Well, okay, we write these I don't know. Does that include punching up the pacifier? <laughs> 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 that is true. We 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 spent a lot of time being like old-fashioned. We don't but. do it anymore. But for whatever, we both got kids and mortgages, and you know when when you spend uh, when you spend six months interviewing. Uh, everyone who ever worked with Andy Kaufman, you know, it isn't necessarily time productive right. in terms of career management. And, and we will happily spend one year on a first draft, happily. And all the all the contracts say 12 weeks, but we just ignore the contract because we're, we're trying to do it right. And so, you know, back when saying, okay, well, my kids are going to go to college and I got to have money. So we would, we would punch up family films because for some reason, people still remembered us as the problem child guys, yeah. even after we've written <laughs> these uh, these other quality productions. And so we we did that to help pay the bills. And then about five or seven or eight years ago, we said, enough is enough. Now we're 50. We've been doing this a long time. We don't really need the money anymore. So let's only do stuff that we love. Let's We don't need to take jobs just for a buck anymore. It's How's like, that working out? It's, so it's so fine. It's, it's actually, great. Actually, and, our whole life changed in a weird way. It, 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 it was kind of premeditated. And then... I'll say OJ made it work. Yeah. And that OJ was a was respected and commercial. And so it made people look at us and go, all right, these guys aren't completely Looney Tunes. It's not just throwing money into a fire if you hire Scott and Larry. And also OJ sh- uh, kind of showed that we could do almost anything in terms of like the tone where it was important, serious, really funny, outrageous, uh, you know, current uh, but you it's know. not the same tone. Yeah, but I'm saying, but it is, it is, it is but I'm saying in terms of like, you know, it, it, it there, there was a, it, it, well, wound up being good. How about that? <laughs> it was very Makes good, sense. and people liked it, and so. Uh, but it's it's been it really out. satisfying, and, and 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 I mean, we feel very lucky. I mean, we we are totally appreciative of the fact that all these years later we can still make a living. Yes, but the fact that we can we for the last five or eight years, whatever it is, we've been able to continue to make a living and only do jobs we love. A couple more for you. Okay. And we'll let you go. All right. What's one script each of you is most jealous of that you've read? Oh, wow. I, I'll, I'll, I'll just name one of my favorite films. How about that? The Last of Sheila. Oh, I, I love this movie. Okay, yeah, there yeah, we go. I know it. Written by? 
It's Herbert Ross directed it. Herbert Ross directed. I don't know who wrote writing it. Writing credits are crazy. Who, Written who, by Stephen Sondheim and Tony Perkins. Oh, what? Wow. Were they buddies? Uh, they were they were party pals. Okay. They would throw New York scavenger hunts with clues all around the city because they like puzzles. And so they decided to write the world's greatest puzzle movie. And The Last of Sheila is so fucking clever. And it's this intricate puzzle, and there's no cheating. All the parts fit together, and all the characters are so funny and bitchy. It's a wonderful script. So mm-hmm. I will I will say. That's a script I would have loved to have been the writer of. That's a good recommendation. That's like 73, somewhere around yes, then. Yeah, very good, okay. sir. And even though we already talked about him once already, I'll say uh, uh, Albert Brooks's Modern Romance. One of my favorites. Which is uh, insanely funny. I think I know every single line from the movie, uh, <laughs> but it's also brutal. You were performing it yesterday. Yeah, it is, it is, it is a brutal look at a stalker. But it's insanely <laughs> funny. It's Albert Brooks trying to do his Annie Hall, but it just he just can't really make an Annie Hall. And he can't help himself from just coming across as the worst human being alive. Uh, but it's genius on every scene. I mean, it's every scene. It's one of those movies that you, you happen to be watching. You're like, oh, I re- oh, this scene's great. I'll just watch. Oh, oh, that next scene is great. The next, you know, it's just, and it's also maybe one of the best films about filmmaking. Mm. Everyone always thinks about the romance part, the that stuff, but him in the editing room with Jim Brooks. And him and in the Bruno sound Kirby, mix. Him in the sound mix. Oh, the sound mix. Space floor. That's those are really good. You you know nothing. It's, Guys, it's I, Hulk running. Hulk running. <laughs> <laughs> I end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. What is the last great thing you guys have seen? Uh, oh, uh Parasite. Yeah, we just I talked love, about it earlier this week. What did you Parasite. love? Uh just the the tone is just freaking unbelievable um it's just it's smart social satire that just very easily slips into horror uh, it's it's a, it's a terrific movie what about you larry um well i'm the head of uh, co-chair of the international uh, feature film oscar thing so i can't say parasite because because we're actually in that category good, good, right good now. to know but parasite is really really good uh i would uh, one of the, i just saw watched again an older film uh, uh ball of fire that's written sure. by uh by billy wilder uh and uh directed by howard hawks and and that movie's just perfect with barbara stanwick and it's kind of a uh almost like a gangster remake of snow white and the seven dwarfs but it's one of the funniest it's a, it's like it's a perfect movie those are great recommendations guys thanks so much for doing this all right great thank you thanks thank you to scott alexander and larry karaszewski and of course thank you to the big homie chris ryan for joining us to talk horror tune in next week on the big picture where amanda dobbins and i will be back to talk about our absolutely reckless early oscar predictions and maybe we'll have a conversation with bong joon ho see you then